0: better way to do this. Let me show you a better
1: way.
0: And be we are live, folks. Welcome to episode 3307 of the Survival Podcast. Returning today is Michael Whitman, char men of the board at Blue Sky Biochar. He's got a new uh, company as well that'll be telling us about today, and we're going to continue where we left off. We're going to expand into all the things that biochar can do. I've talked about a lot lately. I've been doing presentations and workshops on it, and it's just an amazing multiverse of of things that biochar will do. We'll dig more into that today with Michael in just a minute. Before we do, let's go ahead and hear from our sponsors today. Sponsor today number one today is ButcherBox. If you want a giant box of awesome meat shipped to your door every single month, check out ButcherBox.com. Grass-fed beef, pastured pork, pork, pastured poultry, seafood done the right way. You get it all at ButcherBox.com. You know I love them because they don't pay me. Nope, they don't pay me. They send me a box of meat in payment every month for uh, their sponsorship spot. I've been a ButcherBox customer that way for over four years now. If you check them out and give them a shot, you'll see why as well. Again, ButcherBox.com. Remember, they do a discount for members of the member support brigade as well, and that discount will pay for your membership in your first year twice over. So they are a great supporter. Next up today, Ridge Wallet, now just Ridge.com. They've kind of changed into a full EDC company with the wallet still being their flagship product. I've been carrying their wallet, oh, I guess about five or six years now. I originally heard from one of their reps and he was like, hey, I want to uh, I want to be part of it. We want to be part of the CSP you know, thing. We want to be a sponsor. I heard there's a spot open. So we went ahead and uh, allowed them in as a sponsor. I wasn't really sure yet. But the first thing I did was send me a wallet, put it in my pocket, got rid of my billfold, never touched it again. It just made my life a little bit better. And since it is titanium and all those RFID cards are sandwiched between two pieces of titanium, No one can walk by and wand your butt and steal your identity and your information. And if you don't think that's possible, you can buy about 18 bucks worth of parts on eBay, put together your own butt scanner, and go around and steal identity. So it's really important with all these new, you know, chipped cards and stuff, you protect your identity because it is a serious vulnerability. And with that, let's go ahead and bring Michael on uh, and say, Hey, Michael, man, welcome back to the Survival Podcast.
2: Thanks, Jack. It's such a pleasure to be here. I had such a great time the last time we got together, and of course, I've heard from many of your followers, uh, a lot of phone conversations, uh, a lot of business and orders, and it's been really exciting.
0: Yeah, I know. I've got a lot of great feedback. I actually had one person write me, and they had reached out to you, and they were a, a blueberry farmer, and they yeah. had this massive amount of blueberry trimmings every year. They wanted to start making biochar, and I, I think you referred them to Kelpie Wilson for the type of thing they were doing, and... So it's cool to start seeing things feedback on themselves like that.
2: Yeah, he got one of her Ring of Fire. She was very pleased. She sold a few thousand of them since she started all over the world. I've got people in Nigeria looking to purchase them.
0: And I think for that application like that type of pruning, bushy, weird shaped stuff on site, like those larger, you know, open kilns like that are great. But before we dig into biochar, even though we already had you on launch a couple months ago, And everybody loves you there's probably people tuning in right now they have no idea who or what a michael whitman is so how about giving us a little bit of the the elevator speech of the background story uh like i said you've been in this world not just biochar but this whole world of improving our environment for a very long time
2: yeah i um i guess it all started as far as uh, growing things when i was about eight years old in the bronx my grandmother and my mom had kitchen big kitchen windows And lots of plants. And one day my grandmother came to me and she said, Bubba darling, I want you to take care of my plants for me. I'll pay you to do it. So she started showing me how to water them and prune them with a scissor and this and that. And then she says, and once a month we need to feed them. So she would make her own fish fertilizer out of all the fish waste. Put it in a big pot and boil it all down to a brown liquid. Put it in an old mayonnaise jar in the fridge. And it kind of stunk when you opened it. And she said, that you take a teaspoon, you put it into the water, and you water everything, and you do that once a month. And I said, Grandma, I'm eight years old. How am I going to remember once a month? She goes, the day they come to collect the rent is the day you do it. <laughs> so I've been planting things, you know, literally for 60, 62 years. Um, I started uh, professionally with biochar about 17 years ago. Now, I've done many other things in my in my lifetime, and but and I spent a lot of time in the professional beauty industry, which seems to be a little… Uh, different than what I'm doing now, but um, I learned a lot in the beauty industry. My my first mentor was a guy named Jerry Redding, who created Jeramac and and Redkin and and um, Nexus, and he taught me so much about chemistry and physics that I was just blown away. One of the things that I'm going to maybe touch on today is surface tension. Everybody should know about surface tension, and we'll get into that a little bit later on. So it was about 17 years ago I was at an Earth Day event and by the way I was one I was a volunteer organizer of the first Earth Day in New York City in 1970. It was an amazing day. I didn't know that day changed my life until later on, but it certainly left an impact. And of course 300,000 people showed up, but it wasn't like Earth Days today. There were no booths. We were just marching and and you know and uh putting out a message about saving the world and saving the Earth and so forth. And um but I've always been on that path, and I've worked on many, many projects over the years de- dealing with environmental issues, with animal rights issues, and all the things that, you know, I was very interested in. So 17 years ago, I uh, was at an Earth Day event, and I just by chance met this guy, and he started sharing with me about doing paralysis and making this biochar carbon product. I was in the biofuel business, collecting waste oil from restaurants and facilities to turn it into biodiesel or straight veggie oil for those cars that were converted and I said to him I said listen you know we need to stay in touch um, I think in about a year or two our pads are gonna cross again and of course that happened only nine months later yeah. and that's when I started studying using and making biochar and um, I just and let me tell you I made every mistake you can make with biochar in the beginning every mistake you could possibly make I made it and I learned of course from it and you know as many people know your mistakes are your best teachers so those mistakes don't happen anymore and part of the work that I do today in my classes and workshops and with all my clients is that I'm trying to eliminate those mistakes for them so they don't have to waste time and money And the other part of it is the aggravation factor of making a mistake. You know, you get pretty pissed off at yourself. Sometimes people give up. Um, That's not the time to give up. That's the time to learn from what you did and go forward and be better at it. And that's kind of what happened with me. So I started uh, selling biochar in 2010 when I opened up blue sky biochar and we had a a single product that was a pelletized product and, That's all I had on my website at the time. And then, of course, over time, I'm interested in so many other products. And they're so necessary to add to the biochar and add to the soil and add to the plants to create what we call living soil, which is a regenerative soil. It actually gets better over time as opposed to typical soils that deplete in a season or two. So the living soil thing has become the mantra in a way. Um, I'm not going to say that I coined that phrase, although I don't know anybody was saying it when I was saying it, but now it's quite common. Um, so with all of those necessary items and people kept saying to me, where do I get it? I said, well, I guess I got to start providing it. (laughs) So we expanded the, uh, amount of products on our website. The current website actually doesn't even have all the products we have. We're working on a new website, which we haven't finished yet. And there'll be a lot of new products on there. And then there are products that I usually only sell to my large uh, landscape companies um, in large quantity that are too difficult to ship. So I don't put them on there. But when I do a job for them, I prescribe all these things and then I supply it for them. And as you can see, there's some of the products right there.
0: Very cool, Michael.
2: Yeah, mycorrhizae is there's just so many different things. So in the workshops and classes, I kind of have it in three steps. The first step is to create the living soil. And there is a video on our website called Biochar 101 Living Soil. And what it is, is a combination of various ingredients biochar, your base soil, of course, compost, worm castings, rock dust, mycorrhizae. Once that you build that up, then you cover it with mulch to protect it. Mulch is is so important. You can't over mulch. You can't, you have to have mulch. You don't want bare soil because of many reasons, and we'll get into that another time. But after we've established that, then we do the maintenance to that soil, and we do it in two ways, one with uh, compost and worm castings and other possible dry ingredients, and the second part of that is we do a liquid drench with about five to eight different ingredients, depending on what we have on hand or what the client has on hand, and we do a liquid drenching around that, And then we do foliar application, which, in my opinion, is very important, whether you're doing compost tea or other foliar, just nutrient, maybe biology or nutrient and biology based foliar spray. The one thing that we should always understand about our plants is that it's the leaf that's the factory of the plant. Down in the ground is just a supply chain. It supplies nutrients and water up to the leaves. Photosynthesis converts that into carbs and sugars that goes back down into the root system to feed the microbiology and the root systems. So it's a two-way street. What I'm looking to do is open it up to a two-way highway. When we get those three things in place Mm -hmm. and open that two-way street to a two-way highway, we're raising our BRICS level more than likely. And when you raise your BRICS level, and for those of you who don't know what a BRICS level is, it's B-R-I-X, it's the sugar content Of all plants. If you're a bee farmer, you're probably going to use one for the honey. If you're making wine, if you're making beer, or if you're a real top chef, you're going to have a refractometer, which is the unit, the tool that we use to measure the bricks, in your pocket. One of my friends is a master chef, and he always has it in his pocket. When the food comes in from the markets, he tests it, and if it doesn't meet his bricks level that he wants to put into that food, into his meals, he'll refuse it. So the refractometer has many different uses for different, you know, industries, but we use it to test the BRICS level, both in the leaf and in the fruit of what we are growing. When you raise the BRICS level, some very important things occur. The first thing is immunity from insects chewing on those plants. When you get your BRICS level, let's just say for this conversation, beyond 12 or 13 There are very few insects that will chew on those plants. They do not like that high Brix level. Secondly, diseases are less likely to form. Curly leaf, white ply, all kinds of different things that would occur to the plants is less likely. But the big benefit is nutrient density. It raises nutrient density quite a bit, and that makes your food much healthier. Now, nutrient density is something that has been going downhill for the last 40 years. Even the best organic farmers in markets, it's gone down. They're focused on creating and growing food safely without chemicals, Yeah. but they're not necessarily building that biology in the soil and creating that living soil to give you that higher nutrient density. Do you know so what I
0: think that, that really is? I think it's because... When I talk about herbal medicine, I talk about not practicing replacement therapy. So, yes, if you have a headache instead of an aspirin, you can do an extraction from white willow bark and it will help your headache. Why do you have a headache? It's not a it's not a deficiency in aspirin. Right. (laughs) Aspirin is a pain reliever. But why do you have the pain? And if you don't address the underlying cause, all you've done is replace NPK with chicken manure. And you and that's better. But it really hasn't addressed the underlying root cause of why isn't the plant able to get nutrients that, by and large, are probably in the soil and you're supplying them in excess so that the plant that's weak and the biology that's weak can still get enough of it to grow, if that yes. makes
2: sense. Yeah, yeah, it does. So testing BRICS level is really important. And we will have a BRICS testing kit that we found that we've put together, actually. Uh, refractometers. If you're going to buy one, don't spend twenty bucks. Okay. You know the decent ones are anywhere from eighty to one hundred and fifty bucks, and they have electronic ones, digital ones. I prefer the mechanical one. It's simple. It works every time. It's very easy to do a bricks test. Um, just take the juice from either the leaf or the fruit, couple of drops on the refractometer, close the little flap, look through the light, and inside you'll see a scale of numbers. And the whole background, when there's nothing on there, is blue. And when you put the liquid on there, it actually, the white area from the bottom starts moving up. And whatever that division is between white and blue will be a number. And that is your BRICS level. So bricks testing is, I've been doing it for many years. Um, I will say that it's not easy to get the juice or the sap out of some of the leaves. An example would be about eight years ago, a friend of mine growing cannabis up in the Ojai area. Got interested in it. He says you got a refractometer. I said sure I do. So I went up there and we started. We we were trying to get the the sap out of a leaf of cannabis. And let me tell you, it's very difficult to do that. We start. We tried a mortar and pestle, just got mush. We tried a garlic press, nothing happened. So um, I went home that day and I started researching and I found this little teeny. At the time, it was a brass press that used for crushing pills or making pills and things. And it's basically a cylinder about three in, two to three inches long, with a little um, oh shoot I should have brought one up, um, with a little handle that you spin and it moves the plunger in and out. And you stuck the the leaves in there and you put the cap on. It's got a couple of holes in it and a screen, and you just keep compressing until you get some juice. And all you need is a couple of drops. Um, and then my wife came up with an idea. I said, well you know if you're going to put that stuff in there, why don't you shred it up a little bit to make it. Easier for the sap to get out of the leaf. So, we had a five bladed Hmm. herb scissor that we had in the kitchen, and I shredded it up. And so, we made a kit with the little press, the scissor, and the refractometer, along with the bricks charts, which uh, basically look like (coughs) this right here. Okay, Okay, this is the chart. It's laminated. We give it to you, and you can see here. The different where are you, the BRICS levels are from all the way from one all the way up. And when you get up to about 13, you see no insects, no disease. And of course, it doesn't say it, but higher nutrient density as well. Oh. Um, on the back of the chart, we put another chart that's specific to many different crops and what BRICS levels are recommended for those. So you'll get this with that unit. And then there's some other informational sheets on how to do the testing, what's it all about and so forth. So we'll have that BRICS test when we get done. Um, I wanted to show you this picture here, too. Do you know what this is? I do
0: not know what that is.
2: Okay, that's the stomata, the pore on the leaf. Okay. And it's uh, during the day, during photosynthesis, it's all closed up. And when the sun goes down, it opens up. That's why we only do our foliar applications, you know, when there's very little sunlight. The best time is in the evening to um, do your foliar applications so that it sits on the plant all night. Tomatoes opened up. You get as much adsorption as you can possibly get.
0: So let's talk about biochar and composting a little bit. I, sure. I said in the, the last couple of talks I did on this it, we when we talked about inoculation, I'm like, if you just put the biochar into your compost, you, you never have to worry about it again. You don't have to worry about inoculation by the, time the composting process is done. You have biochar in your compost. Apply it. Go on with life. Um, Can you talk about, you know, how does biochar um, work in composting? Because it it does make the biochar ready to go, but it actually, from my understanding, actually plays a role in the composting process itself.
2: It absolutely does. Um, Before I share that, let's talk about what nature has been doing for 500 million years. Okay. When the first plants started to burn on Earth and left that char behind. It took decades, if not longer, for that to get down into the root zone for it to do its work. Sure. So as it sat on the surface, organic matter over the years kept falling on top. Nature has been composting its biochar since the beginning. So this is not something that we created. Nature started this. We're just taking it and having a lot of fun with it and getting better compost from it. So, yes, as you said, it does increase or completely inoculate the biochar. Now, let's talk about inoculation for a moment because it's quite misunderstood. Yeah, I know you don't really care for that word. Well, I like to say I want to make my biochar habitable. Yeah. And I'll explain that. So basically what happens is most people out there in the world hear about biochar. They start saying, oh, you can't use it raw because if you put it in the ground, it'll start stealing nutrients from the soil around it. And in that first season, you'll probably have diminished results, which is true to some extent. Mm Mm-hmm. So what's really important about getting biochar ready to use or habitable is four issues that we need to adjust or or work on. And the first one is raw biochar tends to be very hydrophobic, not wanting water. If you look at the pore structure of the biochar under a microscope, you see all these nooks and crannies. In those nooks, the surface tension is so high, it's literally pushing the water away. It's not hard to fix that, but it has to be done. So that's the first thing. You want to turn your hydrophobic biochar into hydrophilic biochar. And all biochars have a different degree of hydrophobic, hydrophilic. Our commercial biochar is very, very or hardly hydrophobic. We are not really sure why. It just happens to be that way from the process that we make it in. It's very efficient. The second thing about biochar is the pH. And this is completely misunderstood in most places. The pH of biochar is generally eight, maybe even up to 11, especially if you're making it yourself. However, it's very important to understand that biochar is a very weak buffer. So if you had a nine pH biochar, it's not going to turn your soil into a nine pH. Now, if you had a lot of ash in your biochar, that is very hot. That is very uh, liming or alkaline to the soil. But the biochar itself is not that much of a buffer at all. But the reason we want the biochar to have a lower pH is then it becomes habitable to all the microbiology, both bacterial and fungal. They like it in a little lower when the pH comes down and they move in and they flourish. So we want to bring our pH down to some extent. Composting does that. But we're going to talk about a few different ways of inoculating biochar in a moment. So the third part of the biochar that we want to adjust is the ash. Good quality commercial biochar doesn't have an ash issue. Uh, We create it in such an efficient manner that there's very little ash. It is very, very negligible. The fourth part is the VOCs, the volatile organic compounds that could be in that biochar. And again, they're volatile, so they do dissipate out over time. And we want to adjust that by composting. And then, of course, the fifth part is adding nutrients in biology to fill up the biochar so that it's working to your op- optimal um use. So why composting the biochar, it fixes all of those issues. It fixes the hydrophilic to hydrofo- hydrophobic to hydrophilic pretty quickly. It also lowers the pH a little bit. It also will um Counteract any negative aspects of ash and bring out the positives because ash has positive attributes, some minerals and such. Absolutely. But in its raw form, it's very, very alkaline and it will raise the pH of your soil. Sure. Over the years in classes, people have raised their hand and said, Oh, my grandfather used to put the ash from the fireplace into the garden. I go, Please don't do that. Yeah. Um, you, you can really mess up soil for quite a while. It takes a lot to fix it once you've alkalined it with a lot of ash. So, compost the ash, it'll neutralize the negative, bring out the positive. Yeah. And the same with the VOCs. The composting will fix all of those things. And then, of course, because it is a lot of nutrient and biology in the compost, it's going to fill it up or inoculate it or charge it with all those nutrients so that when you use it, it's not only ready to use, but it's going to go to its optimal performance.
0: Yeah, so, I always tell people when they're talking about using ash – if you think, if you, any soap maker knows you pour water through ash to get lye, so yeah. if you take raw ash, put it in your garden, and then it rains, you're you're adding lye to your garden.
2: Yeah, yeah. That's yeah. One, yeah. I know Very it's exactly the same,
0: but it's one way of looking at it.
2: Yeah, I would just avoid putting any ash into my garden. But, you know, you can put some in your compost. Don't overload it because then yeah. you're going to really, you know, tax the composting process to to be able to deal with it. But here's what it does to the compost itself. This is really exciting because um, the first thing it does is it does speed up the process a little bit. I don't really use it for that purpose, but it's the retention of the nitrogen, your natural nitrogen. At the end of a composting cycle, in a typical composting cycle, your nitrogen levels are going to be one to three percent, maybe five. Yeah. By adding biochar with proper protocol and proper amounts, you'll retain 50 to 75% of that nitrogen. And by spraying some bamboo vinegar on in the layers of the compost, you'll up it a couple of more percent. Plus, you'll build your biology in there. The, the, The wood vinegar is really great for that purpose. Again, wood vinegars is a whole different subject, but there's many uses for wood vinegar as there are many uses for biochar. So we're gonna get a retention of, of our, our natural nitrogen very high. The microbiology that the biochar will hold is going to be really significant and you'll end up with more microbiology. Now when you're when you're going through the thermophilic heating cycle and it goes up and down, the biochar will tend to make it a more steady curve. Okay. Less watering needed to your sure. compost because it's holding so much water already. So you end up with a really great compost. Now, depending upon what process of composting you're doing, most people are turning their compost occasionally to keep it aerobic from, and, and preventing it from going anaerobic, which means the oxygen de- depletes and, the, the, and especially the bacterias will start to go bad and start to stink. If you, if your compost smells bad, you're doing something wrong. Compost should smell like beautiful earth. So by adding the biochar to your compost and the percentages can range anywhere from five to up to 40 or 50 percent. I do about 20 percent. That's I found that to be my sweet spot. Now, why would you add more? Because when you use your compost, you're adding more biochar to your soil. I've already got a lot of biochar in my soil, so I keep mine at about 20% exactly. so that all the new compost that I'm adding on, which, of course, compost is your next generation of soil, will have some biochar in it already. Okay. So you choose what percentage you want to use. Here, so here's you're what I'm doing. I, right. want
0: your thought, I want your thoughts on this ratio. So yeah. I have, a, just to give you kind of square footage idea, 12 by 16 foot tough shed I use is a duck and chicken coop. I use um a known source straw that's got no residuals in it as my mm-hmm. primary floor litter. I also use wood chips. And every time they've pooped enough that it needs another layer, I'm putting down a five-gallon bucket of biochar and adding that next layer. And then that gets – it's deep litter. I mean, it ends up, you know, a foot deep by the end oh, of the yeah. season. That all gets made into three Johnson Sioux bioreactors at the end. And That's the five right. gallon bucket was just when I make a cone of biochar, I get about nine gallons and I store it in five gallon buckets and one bucket out to the coop. So I didn't mm-hmm. put a lot of thought in that. It just seemed like a good ratio.
2: Yeah. You know, it, pretty much any amount is good. Of course, the more you use. Now, are the chickens pecking at it?
0: Yeah, but they also get it. So, again, I get about nine gallons. So one five and three and that three gallons ends up going into their food um and for other uses. Uh, I even feed it to my dogs now. They get a tablespoon in their food every day.
2: So, so you don't have to do it every day. I would I would do it every every five days. Oh, okay. Yeah, you don't need to do it every day. Um, dogs
0: or livestock too, both of them.
2: Yeah, pretty much. You know, weekly or so like okay. that is, is fine. There's no specific actual you know uh, timing that you can do it at. As long as you're doing it somewhat, you're getting benefits from it. But you the don't. Reason I started over-
0: to put it in the food instead of free choicing it it.
2: Well it's, with the chickens, chickens love
0: it, it so much the ducks didn't get any.
2: Well I don't know how the ducks will peck at it and go for it but the chickens yes. will certainly peck it out of the litter. Yeah,
0: they do. And they'll
2: get it and they'll use that in place of pebbles and gravel that okay. they use in their gizzard to do grinding. So the research with chickens just to go for a minute on that is uh, in Japan about a dozen years ago or so they did some experiments and they found that um they were putting it in into the litter the chickens were pecking it up when they pooped. It didn't smell because it yep. had absorbed the ammonia yep. um, and the foot and respiratory issues with chickens went down dramatically. Now, with home chickens, that's not so much of an issue. But in close quarter, large scale chicken operations, if they put that biochar in there, the foot and respiratory issues that they have will go down by 90 percent which saves, you know, the chickens, it saves, you know, medical bills and drugs and steroids and whatever they're going to give them. Yeah. And um, the chickens got healthier, but it was the egg that really astounded the results. Higher omega protein, minerals, vitamin, a better shell, a better yolk. Now, if you're growing your, if you have your own chickens and you're getting those beautiful orangey yolks, when you start feeding them biochar, after a period of time, you're going to find them. Not only is it going to get a little bit better, but they did an experiment where they took the yolks, put them in a plate, and they put a toothpick in it, and they all fell over except the one where they were eating biochar. The yolk was so, so strong and held together so well, and of course, higher nutrition as well. Um, it's true with all animals. Animals have been eating charcoal since the beginning of uh, time, and they seek it out. They seek it out. So all animals will benefit from it. Depends on what animal it is and what method you're going to do to feed them it. So it's OK to put it into the chicken food. But if you just lay it in the in the litter, they're going to go for it. Yeah, I'm and been then doing that them. litter is spent and you're going to use it in composting. You already got some in there. It's already yep. been partially composted. So it's like super win win all the way when you put biochar into your compost. You win on both sides. Very big.
0: Yeah, what I've been trying to tell people, you know, not necessarily do exactly what I'm doing, but emulate the idea in that I'm trying to not do more work. I'm trying to take it and just integrate it into my existing system, find some point where biochar enters. And from that point forward, I do everything else the same. The other thing I've been doing is about once a week when I'm adding stuff to my worm farm, I throw a cup of biochar on top of it. And yeah so well, but you would want
2: to throw up you want to grind that down to a fine powder for the worms because they yeah. don't have teeth, and if it's too big, they're just going to go around it. It still benefits the worm bins, but you know for for it to go through their system, it needs to be a little finer powder and again, with biochar in agricultural use, we're always looking for granular from one yep. to ten millimeter. The yeah. big chunky stuff is being wasted because the internal part is never being used, and when it gets too small. It loses some of its water, nutrient, and microbiology holding ability because what is the biochar? It's just a structure. Yeah. It's not a food. It's not a nutrient. It's not a biology. It's simply a structure of carbon that was the the. It's the skeleton left over from the piece of material that it was made from. Generally, it's wood.
0: It's the coral reef of the soil, is the way. Yeah, wow. Thinking. I've
2: never thought of that. That's a because great. Because everything
0: attaches to it. If you think about like a like a a reef creation program, a lot of times they do in marine biology, they'll get like, one of my favorite places is Sanibel Island, which was unfortunately just wrecked by a hurricane last year, but when they tore down the old causeway, they brought these barges in, and they took them about eight miles out, and they dumped all the rubble from the old causeway out in the ocean. And 10 years later, every single fishing guide, Knows exactly where that spot is and the place is a thriving ecosystem because yeah. of the structure's there. I mean, as a fisherman, I've been out on the ocean, and, like, you find a piece of driftwood, a big piece drifting in the middle of the ocean. There's probably bait fish and a cobia chasing them. So you can get ready. <laughs> like, the structure creates life. It's an edge effect, as you right. call it in, in, yeah. uh, in permaculture.
2: Here in Santa Monica Bay, back in, I think it was the 40s, Prior to World War II, the coast of California was so rich in in in, in uh, animal life. It was unbelievable. I mean, giant lobsters, abalone, 100-pound 100, 100 white sea bass, black sea bass. When World War II ended, we fished the whole thing out. Yeah. So sometime after World War II, they took all the old trolley cars, the red cars that they destroyed, that great system, which we're not going to get into, and they dumped them in Santa Monica Bay created reefs. and. Fishermen and fishing boats go out there, you know, they're still there. They've, you know, got all kinds of growth on them now, but they became habitat for for aquatic life.
0: On the grind up, I did want to let you know, you said do not put in a leaf chipper. And I looked at a very expensive leaf vacuum for quite a while. Yeah. I have a very good wood chipper. Yeah. And I thought to myself, if it's the right dampness, it should go through there no problem.
2: Um, so, you can figure it out. I'm sure you can. Here's all I did.
0: Here's all I did. I put it in. You know, I do a cone kiln. Yeah. I do a full quench. I drain it. Yeah. I wait two days. It's yeah. damp, not wet. I learned that wet makes paste. Yeah. Dry, I don't even need to try. I know what will happen if I do it dry. Um, My wood chipper has a downspout. It's designed for a 35-gallon steel trash can to go under it. Uh-huh. Dumped a five-gallon bucket in straight out. Absolutely zero issues. None. The only thing I can do better is put some sort of tarp over it because it does it's so forceful. It throws some, Yeah. and you get – it's beautiful. It yeah. is a be- – and you get a little bit of some big pieces, but mostly you get a really great granular. You get all different sizes, but,
2: I mean, if you, well, throw it on, if you throw it on
0: the thinnest hardware cloth you can get, every piece goes through it.
2: Yeah, that's very good, yeah. Yeah, the one thing about biochar, though, you also want to be uh, concerned about is biochar is healthy for everything around you except your lungs. Absolutely wear a mask and i mean a really good n90 i use a milwaukee n90 mask n95 mask that actually has a rubber seal on the inside unlike all the others so it really seals you very well because if you're working around it okay even if you think you were far enough away from it you go in the house take a tissue and blow your nose you're going to see it there
0: yeah and you don't want to do that I'll reinforce that growing up as a in a family of coal miners. My grandfather was on disability for black lung. Yep. And he hadn't been in a mine in 40 years when I was a kid. And I remember sitting on the porch with him 40 years later, and he'd get a coughing spit spell and choke up black. It would look like black tar out of his lungs. Now, yeah. dude also smoked Camel No Filter, so I'm sure that didn't help. <laughs> yeah. But my, my dad smoked those. But – it was more the black lung than anything else. This dude had pieces of coal in his arm and it's essentially the same thing. So use a lot of care with it because you can be breathing it in and not know it.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Even if you're only working with it for a moment or two, um, it's a really good idea to wear the mask.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Now Um, we should reiterate once it's in soil, once it's in compost and it's,
2: Oh, there's no issue there. Once it gets wet. Yeah. It's not airborne anymore. It doesn't go. You know, you know, sometimes when we're doing that, we are wetting it a little bit, but not enough to cause it to gum up and get real pasty.
0: Yeah, because it does. I is this wet enough? The answer was yes. Mm-hmm. And if you do it any wetter, I spent 15 minutes cleaning out my wood chipper, and it made it look like tar is what it made like that. So I won't ever do that again. But I'm like you. You you learn things by trying them, and mm-hmm. when they screw up, you tell people, and then they don't have to do it right. Like they they can move along.
2: But um, yeah, I always recommend to people to walk, to crawl before you walk and walk before you run. Yep. Sometimes I'll get people calling me up, and they, they, they come up with all these incredible ideas of where they want to take this thing, and I'm going to go, wait a minute, slow down. Start from the very simplest method. Don't go out and spend $35,000 on a unit until you've made biochar in a cone kiln or in a drum yep. or in a pit in the ground learn that method it's like you know your father owns this big company and he wants you to come in and what does he do he puts you at the bottom of course so you can learn it and understand it and that's basically what what i'm referring to so always start off the simplest way keep it simple learn that and then go to the next step to and the next step and the next step and then as far as you want to take it um but let's get back to the um composting Uh and biochar and getting biochar inoculated charged habitable as i prefer to say um so the composting is i would say my favorite method because it wins on the compost side and it wins on the biochar side but not everybody either has the ability to do that or the time to do that so here's a few other ways of getting your biochar ready to use or or habitable you can take existing finished compost and or worm castings blend the compost and biochar and worm castings together i like to use Compost and worm castings together, different biologies and different uses for them or or, uh, purposes. And mix it all together, get it a little wet, let it sit for a week, two weeks, and it will inoculate. Of course, it won't make the the compost much better because it's already made. Already done, yeah. But it is one way. The next way, which is a little quicker, is to take the biochar in a big container, a vat, a trough, an animal watering trough, or whatever you've got depending on how much biochar you're going to be working with. And you're going to be pouring a uh, a liquid drench on it with nutrients and biology. And there'll be some um, – I use this product called Ambrosia. It's a liquid worm casting. I use EM1. I use a little molasses. I'll take some concentrate, uh, water-soluble mycorrhizae. I will put in there a, a fish formula, a kelp or seaweed formula, um, and a few – whatever you've got liquid-wise, nutrient mm-hmm. in biology, and soak that biochar. Now, when you pour it into the vat, if you just pour it on the top and don't do anything else, it's going to absorb in the top and never get to the bottom because biochar holds so much liquid that the initial top area is going to absorb it all. So when you're pouring it in, you got to be turning or use a shovel or whatever method to get that liquid thoroughly distributed through all the biochar that you're, that you're looking to affect. This is very important because sometimes we're doing a super sack with one or two yards in it, and that's a lot of biochar. That's a lot of biochar. And, you, and, and we have to mix up like 100 gallons of material. Yeah. And even 100 gallons will absorb so quickly in the top la- layer of it if you just pour it. bottom don't the get none. Nothing. Yeah. Yeah. So the first thing I do with the biochar before I pour that liquid nutrient biology is I wet the biochar down with water. This way it makes it easier for it to become hydrophilic than hydrophobic because it tends to be hydrophobic initially and the liquid won't absorb in as readily. So I wet it with water first and it starts to create that hydrophilic effect. And then I pour the liquids on there and, and do that. So those are the pretty much the three methods that that I use. Um, and again, it depends if I'm doing a job, you know, on a job site and they have they, they buy a bunch of biochar and they want to use it quickly. We do the liquid method because you can literally use it right after doing that. With the mixing with compost and worm castings, you want to wait like a week for it to really get in there. Make sure it's got some moisture in. it, it doesn't have to be soaking, but it has to have moisture. So it trans- for, transmits all of that nutrient value from the compost and worm castings into the biochar. So those are the three of the methods. I'm sure there are others that some other yep. people have figured out, but this is the way I like doing it.
0: You reference compost tea, and we don't need to go into a deep discussion, but it just so happens I answered a feedback question yesterday. Someone was asking about you know Elaine Ingham and her talk about compost tea and how great it is and all, but they had never heard her talk about using worm compost and compost tea, and should they? And I said, I don't know what Elaine would say, but me, whenever I make compost tea, I include some worm compost in it because there is so much beneficial, uh, organism in it. What are your thoughts on does worm compost go in compost tea?
2: Yes, absolutely. <laughs> um, and again, you know, everybody does it differently, but, um, I would use both compost and worm, and worm castings or compost, whatever you, whatever term you prefer to use. Uh, definitely. Um, when worms take in material, particularly things like chitin, you know like we feed crab shell to the worms at my buddy's worm farm that's chitin and there's other forms of chitin that you know that can be fed to them when it goes through their system it comes out as chitines which really is phenomenal for the soil for cation exchange and many other things so worms are amazing little creatures in how they process stuff now you got to be careful with worm castings in a sense uh, be careful be aware that when you go to a typical big box store or a large place and you buy a bag of worm castings, I'm not going to mention any names. But basically they call it worm castings because whatever they fed that worm went in one end and it came out the other. It's what you feed them and how you process those worms during their their processing and that makes a real worm casting as opposed to just something that is basically it's it's going to give you a little result but it's nowhere near the potential so um at my buddy's worm farm he does them in, in in the lemon bins if you've ever been out in the west you see these big tan bins that are stacked up on trucks filled with lemons he grows them in there as opposed to the windrows that that particularly the larger processors do and what they do is they make windrows one after the other they they wet one down. The worms are in there. When they process everything, they stop watering it. And the next one over still hasn't been, you know, done yet. And the worms literally walk across the ground into the next pile. Hmm. But they dry them out. And when you dry your worm castings out, you're killing your biology. Both that's my really thing
0: is them. if you've got a dry bag, like, it, it's, I get irritated when people sell compost tea in a bottle that's been on a shelf for six months. Because you know how that works as soon as the oxygen stops, right?
2: Right. Well, that could be called an extract that's dormant and will come out of dormancy. But, yes, compost tea. Let's talk about compost tea just for a second. Because there are three points about compost tea. I don't do it. And it's not because I don't like it nor don't it. I don't have the time. Gotcha. And you'll understand in a minute why I don't have the time. Because you have to really be on compost tea. So the first thing about compost tea is brewing it to the right peak point. When is it there? Well, you can analyze it with a microscope and find out, but most people will buy a kit. And in that kit, it says, take this bag, put it in a five-gallon bucket of water, get a bubbler or an agitator in there, and run it for 24 hours and then use it. Yeah. Well, you don't really know when it hit its peak. It could either be too early or way too late because it went over and it starts eating itself up and dying out. So you want to use it at its peak. Now, does that mean that it won't work? No, you just won't get the full potential of what it could be. Secondly, they, it's common to say that once you make this compost tea, you want to use it within six to eight hours. Well, I don't. I don't go by that. I think it's two to three hours. The longer you wait, the more it's going to deteriorate. And depending upon your environmental conditions, by weather and so forth. The type of water, the type of process you use to make it, you want to use that stuff quickly. Agreed. Third part is how you spray it on the plants. You've done for first part right. You got it to the right peak. You've used it. You're going to use it really quickly, and now you're going to put it in a in a spraying system that has an impeller in the pump, and that liquid's going to go through there, and it's like putting it into a, a blender. It's just going to mush it up and kill everything or pretty much a lot of it. So you want to use a um, a diaphragm pump or one of those um, um, sprayers that you pump up air That's and then I it use. just pushes it out. That won't beat it up. And then you have to be c- concerned that the orifice that it's coming out from is not too fine because now you've got all these little biologies going through this little teeny doorway. And it's like, you know, a soccer stadium where everybody's trying to run out and half the people get killed. Yeah, so you want to be able to make it to the proper peak, use it quickly, and have a good sprayer to do that with. Compost tea is awesome stuff. Now I would agree with all of that. There's no such thing as compost tea in a bottle. Yeah. Because it, yeah. it's just going to die. Now, there are extracts yes, extracts, that you can do, or exu, uh, what do they call it, extracts or um, uh, whatever. Um, and those are in a bottle and have generally somewhere around a six to nine month shelf life. And once you use them, they come out of dormancy, which is what ambrosia is, the product that my buddy gotcha. makes in his worm farm. Gotcha. So, um, yeah, I do I do my foliar applications with both nutrients and biology. And I do it in the evening. I have the rock proper sprayer. And uh, it's fantastic. You know, the plants really love it. So, uh, again, don't do foliar application during the day. The stomata is closed up. And there's also one other issue that's – not really that big an issue, but it is potentially an issue, and that is if you don't have any surfactant in that spray to even out the, the water on the leaf or the liquid on the leaf, and it beads up and makes little beads on there, the potential is it could be a magnifying glass in bright sunlight and burn a little hole into the sure. leaf. Not that common, but possible.
0: Same reason you don't water in the middle of the day if it's going to get on your leaves, which I try to get water on soil anyway. let's let's push forward from there. Okay. Um, You've got some new stuff going on with like health, beauty and and, that incorporates biochar. Can you kind of talk about that use?
2: Yeah, sure. So um, charcoal carbon, I guess we can call biochar is a modern term. It's actually short. Biochar is short for biological charcoal. It's fully carbonized material. So charcoal is the oldest human remedy and animals have been eating it since the beginning of time. I mean, people were eating charcoal way before there was any natural remedies, any plant remedies, uh, homeopathy. None of that existed. People were using charcoal. So it is. Proven over time that it works. So we find that if you like for the last 10, 12 years or more, Um, I've been researching out other things that have charcoal. So I would go to Amazon and put charcoal in and be astounded by all the amazing things that I would find charcoal in. Um, So there are soaps, there's toothpaste, there's deodorant, there's mouthwash. I have a a crate here of materials that I've been collecting. I'll just pull up uh, one. This one's called Hello. It's a natural, fresh uh, mouthwash with charcoal and turmeric. Um, My friend went to Thailand recently and found these little pills here. And basically, in in all over Asia, they're common for indigestion, for diarrhea. And this is little capsules. And then there's also these capsules, which you can find pretty much in health food stores and such, activated charcoal capsules. Um, Here's a, a juice company that made a coconut charcoal lemonade. And they made a few different ones. And um, <clears throat> here is, this is interesting. Dr. Sheffield's was the first tube toothpaste in, in the world. And they make a charcoal version, which I believe they've been making for, like, generations. Um, this is a activated charcoal powder that I make foods with. And I, I also wanted to show, here is a, a hamburger with a bun is made with, bio, with biochar in it. It's very healthy. It has no flavor, no taste, so it doesn't change yeah. anything. You just add it in here. And here is a charcoal Moscow Mule cocktail. In fact, a friend of mine just opened up a bar, and I recommend that he use this plus the bamboo, the wood vinegar, because it gives a smoky flavor. My wife makes a great uh, Bloody Mary, and we put about eight to ten drops of the uh, liquid smoke in there, the bamboo, the bamboo vinegar, and it's we call it, a smoky Bloody Mary. And here is a pizza made with charcoal. And this one, I believe, was from Toronto. And this one here was from somewhere in um, in Europe, in Eastern Europe. A friend of mine was visiting, and he, they were serving charcoal pizzas. Um, here's a very interesting one. This is uh, Burger King. Is it Burger King? Yes, Burger King in Japan. Once a year, does a charcoal bun and charcoal cheese. They huh. do this once a year and it's very healthy you know um this is interesting and you no know, related to taking it but this is an artist in Europe called Aaron Demetz where he makes these charcoal st- uh, um sculptures and these are phenomenal the work he's done so there's a whole different range of things that we can do it with and one of the things that um here's a couple of other items this is a um uh what is this oh this is a a wood vinegar um, patch that you put on the bottom of your feet to to burn off your calluses, um, this is really cool. Um, I got these online and there were uh, there 's not in here I ate them all charcoal covered peanuts huh? and they put these in little packets and in some restaurants in Asia, instead of putting a mint out at the at the, uh, the, um, the desk out front when you 're checking in and checking out, they put these little packets and you eat them for good digestion. Um, all kinds of things. Here's a, 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 a facial mask that you can wear that has charcoal embedded into it. I've had several of those. This is a charcoal toothpaste that I use called Hello. It's a very good one. Um, this is a charcoal magnesium deodorant. Hmm. Works great. Um, oh, there's just so many. I don't want to go too crazy with it. But there, I got this box filled with all kinds of things that contain charcoal. Many different charcoal, peppermint, toothpaste, and so forth. Yeah. So, there's one thing that I found. Let me see if I have it in here. Hmm. Uh, these are uh, charcoal things you put in your refrigerator to keep it fresh. But one of the things that I found on Amazon was this thing called Subtle Butt. And it was a pad with charcoal in it that you stuck in your underwear. And if you let one loose, it would absorb it. Now, that sounds kind of funny and all, but what's really late night comedy is when you go on to Amazon and look up the subtle butt and look at the, the, uh, re- the um, responses from the people who bought it, the stories will crack you up. This guy said he was on a plane. You know, he used to travel a lot, and, you know, he was always embarrassed every time he had a cut when he go to the bathroom, you know, and they will wait for it to air out. Well, he started using them. He said, you know, well, they might have heard it, but they couldn't smell it. It's, it's there
0: real. I, <laughs> I've got it on the screen. He's not making it up, guys. I, I, need, I need some way to use this on my dog. Cause my,
2: well, they make all different kinds. Well, if you if you feed it to your dog, let me tell you, they'll have less gas. They do and their poop will come out dark almost black and it won't smell and it will dry up so quickly the flies leave it alone pretty pretty they don't spend much time on it
0: oh yeah but when you were talking about the 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 coop so since i've been feeding it and adding it to my litter i have almost no flies now our fly situation here generally starts early spring peaks about right now and then mm-hmm. declines as our rain declines for the year mm-hmm. i i'm not going to say there's no flies I'm going to say that typically this time of year when I go out to the coop, especially in the middle of the day when it's warm, it's a buzz. And I, I used to use those uh, glue traps because it's non-toxic yeah. and it works. I have very few flies since last well, time. Well, that's ago.
2: very interesting. I am I hope it's because of what you've been doing. But since we were mentioning that, um, a dear friend of mine, Ron Whitehurst, has a company called Rincon, R-I-N-C-O-N, Vitova, V-I-T-O-V-A, okay. based in, in Ventura. It's an insectatorium, and they sell different insects and bugs and biologies. Oh, yeah, he was just on. I had Ron him on a few weeks ago, yeah. yeah. Oh, well, did he, he's got a fly uh, procedure where he takes these wasp eggs, yeah. and you put them out on the property. The wasps you know, hatch, and go out, and they start attacking the eggs and the flies and reduces yeah. the population. I'm so glad you had Ron on. He's one of the best people I've ever met. He's
0: good, dude. I think that's the second time we had him on. I think he had him on like five years ago.
2: Yeah, you got to take a tour up there if you're ever up there. Um, his, his facility is pretty cool. I go up there pretty regularly and every time I go there, he gives me some plants cause he's got stuff all over the place and he does a lot of great work. Oh, that's great. Well, um, so let's, let's get out about to, your body
0: care stuff though.
2: Yeah. So, um, knowing that, you know, over the years I've always had a biochar or, and or a bamboo vinegar soap, but all the sources kept drying up. The companies either went out of business or something happened so a few about a year or two ago a friend of mine I was in the professional beauty industry for many years came up with the idea of doing um these organic yucca-based soaps. Now yucca is yucca and colloidal opium are the base of all the soaps. And yucca is the best cleanser agent there is. No chemicals uh, surfactants necessary. Yucca, we take the root and we don't harvest the whole plant, we just take some of the root out so it's regenerative. Create a powder and utilize it in the soaps so we created um a bio, a, a bamboo vine- a bamboo biochar soap which is um basically the the biochar with the uh, yucca and colloidal oatmeal then we have a bamboo vinegar and then we have also and the bamboo vinegar is fantastic for the skin we have a bamboo biochar and lava dust soap the reason for that is i wanted to compete with lava soap and have that good exfoliation and that scrubbing ability in a good organic safe soap to use so we created the biochar lava lava dust uh, soap and it's fantastic we originally created it for hands and feet for dirty hands and feet farmers mechanics workers people you know work with their hands but many of the people who bought it use it on their whole body and they say it's fantastic for all kinds of issues seborrhea, psoriasis you know dry skin all kinds of different things so You know, we we now say, okay, yeah, I was afraid that people would use it everywhere on sensitive areas and it might scrub them a little too much. But (laughs) apparently it doesn't do that. So they love it. Um, So we have the um, the basic Yucca soap, which we call Simply Soap. We have the bamboo biochar, the bamboo vinegar, the bamboo biochar with lava dust. And then we have a sage and cedar, which is both a body bar and we also have it in a shave bar. And you can see the round one is the shave bar. And it is the best shave I've ever had. And, you know, you can see I have a little scrubbiness, so I don't shave too often. But when I do, I do this. And then we also have a little shave kit with the bar and a bowl and the mug and also a brush. And and by the way, those soap dishes down there are very interesting.
0: I was going to comment on those. I'm not sure if they do anything else, but we're big on using natural soaps. And we got something similar because if you set a natural soap on the shelf in your shower – you will have to pry it off it it will once it dries it will stick so we learned yeah. that lesson
2: and it also it stays wet too long yeah. and tends to you know melt away quicker if yeah. you treat your these bars of soap right and keep them dry or somewhat dry in between use they go a awful long way Valid. so um we have the different biochar uh, the different uh, soaps and as far as the the soap dish which comes in white or black by the way when you buy 3 or more soaps you get a free soap dish on the website Um, these soap dishes, when I first ordered them, I didn't know what they were really made of. They called them bamboo because they had this bamboo little, you know, network here to hold the soap above the liquid. So they dry out easily. But what I found out after I had gotten them and started reading a little bit more about them, these, these dishes are not plastic. They're made from powdered bamboo with potato starch pressed together. Wow. They won't degrade while you're using them, but if you ever break one, and you need to throw it away. Just bury it in your compost or bury it in the yard. They'll decompose naturally. Even the the bamboo wood will, but that'll take a little bit longer. Yes. You can take the bamboo wood and throw it into your biochar while you're making in your batch and have a little bamboo biochar in there. So these are really incredible soap dishes because of what they're made of and how they're made. And if I had dreamed of it ahead of time, I would have said, that's what I want. I didn't. I didn't even think about it, and I ended up with something that was a dream that I never realized. So it's pretty cool. That's awesome. So this, this soap company is. These are really amazing soaps. I really have to say, the responses that we get from people who have bought it, um, the testimonials are unbelievable. There are some on the website blueskybodycare.com. I encourage you to go there uh, and purchase these. You'll really gonna love them. And again, if you buy more than three soaps, you'll get a free soap dish with it. And um, that's pretty much what I want to say about it. Now, there are so many charcoal soaps out there. And I think ours has got a better formula because I looked at everybody, what they were doing, and we did something a little bit better. Um, even the packaging is compostable. This is we have no metal, no plastic, no glass. When you when you're take this bar of soap out of your package, you can either bury it or throw it in the compost. It'll become part of the earth. And it's a, a vegetable source inking as well. So we're really conscious about creating a product that, you know, a broad spectrum of people who are, have a consciousness about life and about the earth will like about it, you know, so that's, that's just something. We are going to come out with bar shampoos, no more bottles and waste. We've already experimented with them, but we just haven't, you know, started the process of making them in quantity as of yet. And so, I will say
0: you sent me some of the soap. It's great soap. It's just fantastic soap. Yeah,
2: it really is. Uh, my wife really loves them and she's very particular about things. Um, but she really took to them and I, i love them and we're very proud of this company. It's a, it's a fantastic thing. Um, we looked at every little aspect from the formulations to the ingredients to the, um, packaging and all these. And we really just wanted to have one that had everything because when you go online, you see a lot of companies, they're doing what they think is good and they're only touching upon one or two of these things, and it's really just a marketing thing. This is not a marketing thing. This is what we really believe we should have in our product, and it just so happens to be very good marketing.
0: (laughs) That's the best marketing. Yeah. Um, um, Can you talk a little bit? We talked about it last time, but I do think that my audience, especially those who didn't hear the first show, would be interested in this. You have a product called the Fab Stove. Uh, and I don't know that I would recommend you buy the fab stove to make biochar. You buy the fab stove for what it is and you get some biochar when you use it is how I would describe it.
2: Exactly. The fab stove. Okay. So here's a quickie on stoves. Um, I have a whole collection of clean cook stoves. That's the category. This is in um, some I've made some I have bought. There it is right there. Um, Dr. Paul Anderson, who was known as Dr. T Ludd top lid updraft, that technique of making biochar. He's the, pioneer of it he's world famous he's an amazing guy what a wonderful human being and uh he came to me a few years back and he said what are you doing with stoves i said well the stove that i used to have is no longer available and so i got nothing he goes well we're working on one and i said you are going to work on one i said great i want to be part of that Mm -hmm. so he got a buddy of his in south africa who's a great engineer and um over a period of time we They developed it. There's Ray Serino. That's the guy who's got the off-grid property up in up in in Owens Valley. Um, He said that we were working on this uh, this thing called the Fab Stove, and they sent me a prototype, which I worked with for a while, and it was very good. And then uh, Dave Lello, the uh, engineer from South Africa, came to the U.S., and he spent some time at my home with me. And we went over the prototype, and I gave them my input of what we want to see and what we want to do. Um The very top there, which was the you know the, where the pot goes on that's it's now stainless steel used to be painted black. uh we put a wooden handle now the whole area of the uh the chamber where that wooden handle is uh that does not get hot. This thing is really fantastic, so you fill it up with wood pellets now, can you use other things? Yes, but when you use wood pellets for which are very cheap, nine bucks for forty pounds, you get twenty five burns um you're getting a longer burn and a little hotter burn because the pellets are dense and they fit in there densely. There's more fuel that can be compacted in there with the right amount of airflow around it. If you put wood chips in there, you have less fuel. If you put sticks in there, you got even less fuel. So I've experimented with, with um, wood chips, with pistachio shells, with sticks, a number of things. And I always keep going back to the wood pellets because they're denser and you get a hotter, longer burn which means also you're going to get a little bit more biochar because you have more volume or more density of material in there. So the uh, stove is so amazingly efficient. Typical clean cook stoves have an erratic flame shooting out of the top. Mm -hmm. When you put your pot on there and cook, at the end you can see all this carbon on the bottom of your pot. That means this this stove is very, very inefficient. It's letting out a lot of knocks and... CO2 and methane, whereas this stove, you'll never see black on the bottom of your pot. It's so darn efficient, and it doesn't put an erratic flame out, and if you watch the video, which is linked to this, uh, this episode, um, there's a great video. It creates this vortex inside, which is like no other clean cook stove. It gets really hot. You'll see the colors are going to be different than ones that are erratic and just send a flame out, and it's super efficient. Can it be used indoors? Well, they are doing that in parts of Africa and Asia, but we cannot say that because it it, it would be a real mess for us to say, oh, yeah, you can use it inside. It's very efficient. You can use it in an enclosed patio with lots of ventilation, but it is basically an outdoor stove for camping, for the backyard, for tailgate parties. People who live off grid love this stove. It's so easy to use. Now, you notice it has, if you can go back to that picture for a second. um,
0: Give me a second. I don't know how I got here. (laughs)
1: Okay.
2: There you go. So you see the battery there? Yeah. That's a solar charging battery. It does not come with it. We used to give them out, but the price for shipping these things to us got so high. Instead of raising the price, we just eliminated this. You can use any USB battery. Any little thing, like I have this little solar battery that I had for many years. Uh, It doesn't have to be solar charging. It's nice if you're out in the woods and you're there for days, you can charge it up to use it again. Um, Usually what I do with any battery is I charge it up at home, and that's enough to go for many, many, many days. Yeah. Um, It comes in a little instruction sheet, and it also comes with one bag of pellets to do your first burn if you don't have any on hand. But wood pellets are real cheap. Buy the pine cheap 40-pound bag for under $10. bucks. do not buy the hardwood. You're wasting your money. Not necessarily. That's for you smoking
0: your brisket, not for cooking in a pot. Yeah. Yeah.
2: And this stove will hold an 80-pound pot. It's oh, so wow. strong. And it's lightweight. It weighs about 9, 10 pounds at the most. It's t- It's 11 by 11 by 14 high. Um, so it's, it's really fantastic. I encourage you, if you're doing any outdoor cooking, you know, the fab stove is the most efficient one in the world. There is no stove more efficient than it. And the price is great because some equal that are not as efficient are 250 to $350. So for a buck 99, this is a really great value. Um, now you do get biochar. And you get very high quality fully carbonized biochar in this stove, whereas other clean cook stoves, when you're done cooking, you've got to pour the coals into water to quench them to stop them okay not with this stove. You pull the chamber out, lay it on a flat surface, put a little like a dish on top, let it cool down in that time. The heat is still carbonizing the material, so when you're done. With this stove, the little pellets will break apart so gently in your fingers. The other stoves, when you quench them, they're not fully carbonized. So when you take the pellets and put them between your fingers, <clears throat> you can't necessarily crush them very easily. That yeah. means it's not fully carbonized.
0: Sure, they are getting
2: fully carbonized, super high quality, albeit a small batch.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, hey, um, let's also talk about rock dust. I know one of the things you sent me was like, uh, a mineral product that had rock dust and it also had a lot of other things. It had like, I was like, I, saw, I noticed it had shellfish shell and crab shell and stuff. And I'm like, sounds like turtle shells and terraprated to me. So
2: okay, well with? here's an interesting thing about it. So I've been using, you know, a lot of us have been using. Oh, sorry, a little pile down there. Uh, using azomite for many years. It's very common rock dust. It's uh, they call it azomite because it's 78 minerals and trace minerals from A to Z. Okay. It's mined in Utah, comes in mostly, most people use it in powder form. They do make a granular form, which they say is slower release. I, I guess it is. I use the powder. So about eight years ago, a friend of mine came to me and he said, hey, we've been uh, doing some research and blending different mineral complexes together, azomite, basalt, um, leonardite, uh, granite, and a few others he had mentioned. And, he, and so I said, hey, that sounds great. So I started blending them. And using them, and I said, "Wow, you know, I, I mean, absolutely." I did a little side by side, and I said, "Yeah, there's definitely a little difference here." So we started blending these together and, and selling it as the Blue Sky Complex Rock Dust Blend. We used to call it Blue Sky Biochar Complex Rock Dust Blend, but people yeah. thought it was a biochar product. Yeah,
0: biochar, sure.
2: And it's not. There is some biochar in there, but it's not considered a biochar product for biocharing your soil. So we had to change the label. But we started out with seven. Then we went to nine. The next batch. The next batch, we went to 11. The batch after that, we went to 13. And the latest batch was the biggest batch we ever made, several thousand pounds. Uh, We have a much nicer label on it now Um, (laughs) with the ingredients in there. Uh, We had to go down to 12 because one of them became too expensive and difficult to get. So there's a whole bunch of things in there, both mineral and like we put alfalfa meal, kelp meal, crab meal, God, I can't remember them all. Here, let me read it off real quick. Here, as you can see, it's a much nicer label than it used to than the other one that was just printed out. So we have um, azomite, basalt dust, biochar, kelp meal, alfalfa meal, crab meal, humic acid granules, fish bone meal, C90, and boron. Now, boron is a very small trace amount. Um, for a thousand pounds, we'll only use like 25 pounds of boron because you want only trace amounts of it. But this is one hell of a fantastic mineral, uh, source for your garden. Why minerals? All structural life on earth, all cellular structure life on earth requires minerals to build cellular structure. The roots and the microbiology in the soil feed on the minerals. So mineralization is incredible. If you ask me, what are the two, if you only had two things that you would add to your soil, I would say biochar and rock dust or minerals. Those are the two real keys. doesn't mean you don't want to add compost, worm castings, mycorrhizae, and all those things, but these are the two at the top of the heap because they're so darn important. And most people don't add minerals to the soil. Don't do anything about that. So, um, so minerals, again, really, really important for our creating of a living soil. Can you talk about though
0: how the biochar interacts with minerals in the soil?
2: Well, the biochar is a house for the microbiology, which are going to feed on minerals and other right. things in the soil. So they kind of go hand in hand. That's why I put a little bit of powdered biochar in there uh-huh. so that when it goes in the soil, if there's no other biochar around. They're really not using biochar. At least there's something for some of that microbiology to start expanding their colonies and moving into along with the minerals. So it just felt like it was natural to do those two things together. So, um, yeah, I can't stress minerals uh, as as much. Um, I wanted to show also, you, uh, you know, this little block here. A friend of mine does hempcrete. And if you notice, this thing is a little gray. That's because there's biochar in this. And it really improved its moisture and, and mold abilities. And it, it just improved the hempcrete to a great degree. And if those of you who don't know what hempcrete is, it's used as a building material. However, don't misunderstand it for for structural. It is not a structural product. It's strictly an insulation product that you put within the structural walls of what you're building. So that's that interesting little thing. I wanted to touch on something that is of great interest to me and I have a feeling everybody's going to feel the same way when I start describing this. It's a Japanese technique, an ancient technique called Shosugiban. And in ancient Japan they decided they they were experimenting and they used this and what they were doing was here's a piece of wood this is actually a flooring piece of wood that I charred the outside of it and what happens when you char the outside of wood is that it becomes disease proof and insect proof no critters no nobody's going to go in it cauterizes the surface of it now if you do it heavily. Just for an example, you see how heavy this charring is on this, this um statue here? Yep. If an ember hits this, it will just fizzle out because the, the the flash point for the charcoal is way higher than the raw wood. Yeah. So the Japanese used it for a fire prevention technique as well as preserving it. So I was doing some research on this and I became kind of a show Sugiban master and I've been teaching classes on it and I've been doing it. I just did a job recently in a custom house in uh, Culver City where they wanted it on the ceiling of their living room because they wanted that effect. I had previously done one for that same contractor on a custom home in Pacific Palisades, and it came out fantastic. It's so beautiful. Now, they didn't need it for all the reasons that the Japanese created it. They were doing it as they wanted it for the aesthetic point. Sure, But sure. I did a 100-foot wall in my food forest. Uh, uh, four by 12 stacked one on top of the other we charred the whole thing before we put it up they're 10 foot pieces there are 20 of them so it's a it, good it, thing goes 100 feet to hold in my my food forest and that wood's going to last longer than pressure treated wood it's oh, an easy process to do you just go onto to face onto youtube and put charring wood and you'll see a lot of crummy little videos little segments and you'll see a few of them that are really good so show sugiban is incredible process and any kind of wooden structure you're going to build outside, you want to do this. Now, as I was researching and I found out that, that ranchers around the world, when they put a post in the ground to run their wire, their bob wire around, they would char the bottom of the post before they put it in the ground to make it last longer. So no worms would come in. And th- those posts would rot on the top way before they were oh, rotting wow. the ground. usually the opposite.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. 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 absolutely. So, um, I've done it with the workbench. I did it on it. Yeah, it's pretty cool.
2: Yeah, here's a picture of us using it on those big, giant pieces of wood for for our work. We use a roofer's torch. So, what we do is we char it and then we take a nylon, not a metal, but a nylon brush, you know, like a a bathroom scrubbing brush, and just brush off the powder. And then we can layer and layer burns and keep doing it. The more we do it, the more it'll end up looking like alligator skin. And that's the fire resistant point. I didn't do my wall to that because I didn't have to worry about fires for that particular purpose. But um, some people do. So Shosugiban is a great method. And how does it relate to biochar? Well, it doesn't really exactly relate to it, but it sort of does because it is charring. Yeah, it is a charcoal surface. So the interior of the wood is still raw. But the surface has been charred and quarterized, so it, it pretty much lasts for a very long time. And I wanted to introduce everybody to that because it's such a great, great, great method. Um let's see, did you have any other things that you had on the question sheet? Yeah,
0: yeah. Let's um well I want to ask you about this. So I I've been using your wood vinegar, um, especially early on, putting things out. As a pest deterrent, I don't have a huge pest problem to begin with because of my ongoing practices. The only thing that has touched anything this year in my garden is freaking cutworms on bean starts. Uh-huh. Um, I usually have, I I grow some really vine borer resistant squash varieties because we have so many vine borers here. Yeah. It's worked on that, which nothing works on that. Um, but yeah, other than putting little rings around your beans, man, cutworms just seem to be. The one thing that's a pain in the rear end for me, I can't shake.
2: Yeah, we have a few things out here. Um, We have this thing called the Bagrata beetle. Okay. And I haven't seen it in a few years on my property. But um, one or two seasons ago, one of the farms that I consult to, that had been one of my earliest farm clients, um, he came to me originally because he had uh, giant greenhouses growing tomatoes, and powdery mildew was a, a common thing. It was always there. And he asked me, what can I do for that? I said, I got the simplest solution in the world. It's the bamboo vinegar. You spray it on early enough in the plant, it won't get it. When they do get it, it'll stop at deadnish tracks. Of course, you'll still see it, but it'll mm-hmm. be dead. And he was just blown away with it. And then he started using it for other things. So he's got these two massive greenhouses with 8,000 plants in it, mostly huh. tomatoes. And then he's got 16 acres outside growing all kinds of uh, other vegetables, particularly greens, and such, and uh, he got invaded by the bragadoe. They ate all his kale, all his chard, all those great greens, ate it up. I mean, they came in when they when they come in. It's it's it doesn't look like locust, but there's so many of them. They, they act just, like locusts. They chew the hell out of it all. So he said, "All right, can the bamboo vinegar work?" I said, "Sure, just increase your 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 uh your dosage a little bit. Put a little bit more in there. Dilute it a little bit less." He did it, and he goes, man, it wiped them out. We are now free of the bagrada beetle. And most people here don't even know what it is because they never see it. But years ago, I had these tower gardens, those big tall things that, you know, do aeroponics. And the bagradas would come in and eat all the greens off of it, and I'd shake the thing. They'd all fall on the ground, and I'd stamp on them. And then when I finally used the wood vinegar on it, i go, wow, this is great. I don't have to go stamping on them anymore. And it not only kills them on contact safely. Um, It doesn't wipe out colony out like other insects. It won't wipe out the colony like a pesticide would. But it not only does kill them on contact, but it it keeps them from coming back. They don't like the the odor of the liquid smoke, the smell. I personally like it. My friend Ray, we had a picture of him with the stove earlier. He dabs it on like cologne. He likes the smell of that woody smell.
0: Yeah, I know what these things are now that I see them. I'll, I'll bring it up here in just a second. Um, yeah, these things are awful.
2: That's it. That's the Grotto. Boy, I hate those little suckers.
0: And they're yet another invasive. Yep. They're not, they're not a native. And that's part of why we have so much issue dealing with them, uh, is because they're, they're absent native predators. Uh, so like many things that are like that, when they show up, they go crazy. Uh, I want to ask you too, like, so I've, I've been, Basically consuming everything I can find on biochar. I've seen some people, especially with the open burn cone kilns or using like a barrel with a saddle cut in it or what have you. Yeah. When they quench, they go ahead and start the process of getting stuff into the biochar right away. Not so much with micros, but, you know, they'll add a gallon of sea mineral or kelp meal or human urine uh, during the quench. And they'll let that yeah. sin- soaking, like, because that's what I do. I soak mine and then drain it. Yeah. Um, and I try to fill from the bottom because I learned that from you about the steam. Is that because I've seen the people doing it, I don't mean to take away from them at all with what they're doing, but they, they're they not citing any sort of research or anything. They're just doing it because they think it'll work. Do you think that's a good practice or not?
2: Well, it, it depends on what they're going to be putting in there. Certain things okay. will survive that heat. Certain things will not. If yeah. you put compost tea in there, you just killed it immediately as sure, soon as it hits sure. that heat. Uh the wood vinegars, they'll be fine. Urine will be fine. Um rock dusts or minerals like C ninety or other things yes. will be fine. Um certain things you gotta understand when it hits that those hot coals, that's those the interior of that coal, what do you think the temperature is Fahrenheit? <sighs>
0: I don't know, somewhere north of 900 degrees.
2: 1810. Okay, so double what I said. So if you were to do this, okay, you're making it in a cone kiln, right? Yeah. And down below, you got that bed of coals that is buried down there. Yeah. I made this really interesting. I was trying to use those laser thermometers, but only raz- only only gives you the rim, yeah. The surface temperature, which would go up to seven eight hundred, maybe.
0: That's so where my number this came from.
2: Really high temperature. Wand that was a thermometer, basically, yeah. or a sensor that I hooked up to my Craftsman VOA, VOC meter, and I stuck it down in there, and I could not believe what the temperature was. It was yeah. inside those coals. It's like the in in like the middle of a sun, the sun or something, and they're eighteen hundred degrees, and it's yeah. always pretty much eighteen hundred to five to ten degrees. That's just naturally where it goes to. Yeah. So it gets pretty damn hot in there. So you got to think what you're going to be putting in there, whether it will survive or not.
0: Yeah. Well, now, to be yeah. fair, what these guys are doing, now, none of them are using living things anyway. But what they were doing is filling it up. And it's yeah, just no, perfectly,
2: perfectly. It's cool. And then
0: they, you know, then they would add it after they had filled it up and start around like a witch's cauldron or something. Absolutely.
2: Now, by putting the vinegar in there, the wood vinegar, you're already going to have it hydrophilic. Yeah, yeah. And up. you're going to be lowering the pH immediately. Yeah. So and also by stirring it all up and you pour it out, whatever ash is in there is going to go into the liquid and you're going to be pouring it out. OK. So and that's a pretty good thing. Now, when we do a burn, we, we keep that water because I use pyramid kilns now, not cones anymore. They're too okay. expensive to make and too much waste of material. So we have the corners. And we just pour it off and then I put it into the composting or in some beds or something because we're in California. You know, we're water conscious. We try to reuse and recycle everything we can. So, uh, yeah, uh, I highly encourage you to use the quenching water. Now, when you're doing a pyramid or a a cone kiln or even the pit in the ground, the stuff that's the the coals that are down below are going to fully carbonize because there's no oxygen. Yeah. Or very little. Lots of heat. So, the material gets fully carbonized, but it's that top layer that doesn't always fully carbonize. Correct. And sometimes you'll quench it and you'll take it out and you'll go, wow, this is still pretty hard inside. Yeah. No problem putting it back into another burn later on.
0: Yeah, I but treat it like, like it your, your sour mash when you're making moonshine. You just pitch it to the next batch. Yeah, exactly. Exactly.
2: So, you know, you can do that. So, what I do on the last burn or the last layer is I let it burn a little bit longer. Yeah, and even if I see a little bit of ash, I want it to fully carbonize. Yeah, and then I'll do the quenching. Yeah, yeah I even with experimented with smothering them. I made a pyramid kiln with a special lid on it. <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> and this um, <coughs> high temperature sealant around it, and then we took clamps and clamped the whole thing and let it cool off instead of quenching it. Uh huh. The advantage is. No oxygen, plenty of heat still built up in there. That means everything inside of that is gonna fully carbonize. Gotcha. Because what is biochar? Fully carbonized oh material. Life. Um I just had a new client call me the other day and we were talking, she sent me a note, she goes, Oh, my neighbor's using this lump charcoal and says it's great for the soil. I said I, I I have to call her back today. I write this. It doesn't. it's not biochar.
0: No, and it's
2: torified. To... There's still organic material in there to use it as a fuel.
0: What so, I've been saying in my talks is everybody wants to shortcut everything. Yeah. Go get a bag of it. Don't use it in your garden. Take a big lump out of it. Get it all over your hands and go wash your hands with no soap and see what happens. Yeah. Right. And when your hands are still covered in goop, that's because there's tar's and resins in there. Right. because the manufacturer of that product wants Tarzan and resins. Yes. Because it's it's good in your barbecue. Yep. It's not a clean, you know, you want that smoky taste. Yep. I mean, that's that's why you barbecue with charcoal versus even lump versus propane. That's the difference. You get that flavor. Exactly.
1: Exactly. And, and
0: real char like you're talking biochar, if you do burn it, it burns incredibly clean because it's pure carbon. It's like in a way, it's like burning like a bituminous coal, like a soft coal. Yeah. It's yeah. It, we it, call it, that fight, it constantly. Every time I talk about it, everybody wants to use Kingsford.
2: Well, that's the worst thing to use, because sure. that has a lot of wood material in it, plus chemicals. Whereas you can buy lump charcoal that is just charcoal, but it's not fully carbonized. Right. It's still got organic matter in it. And that is called, we we, we tend to use the term torrified, not completely carbonized. Gotcha to describe that type of wood. Will it work? Um, probably not very well. And with the potential that it can cause issues to the root systems because of what you were saying in the oils and other things that would Policars be in there. Thing. Yeah,
0: biochar is full-time, but you're, you're, not, you're doing harm versus good. Yeah,
2: yeah. What people think, you know, hey, let me try to outsmart all the people who've been doing this. Everybody's got their own way of trying yeah. to redo it, rehash it. And believe me, I've gone through this for a lot over 17 years of trying to explain it to people. You know, stick with what we know works. Don't try to reinvent things. Start off simple. Crawl, then walk, then run.
0: Yeah. So I, I've been watching this one dude from – he's either from New Zealand or Australia. And he, he does his biochar simply in a 55-gallon drum with – a and he laying sideways with a saddle cut in it. Yeah. And my thought was to – and I'm trying to do it with off the shelf products. I haven't taken the time to look and see if there is I could weld something together, but not everybody has a welder. I like to give people a way to do things with off the shelf if they can. And my thought is a small metal pipe threaded on one end that you can put a hose bib on, and threaded to fit in the bunghole of the barrel on the other end. <laughs> and the reason you do this is after you're burnt and you put that at the bottom at the six o'clock where you uh, set your bin, okay? When you finish your burn and you want to quench, you hook your hose up to that hose bib and you open it. And you are absolutely going to fill it from the bottom. You fill yeah. it up. You let it quench as long as you want. When you're ready to put, the, you close it, shut the hose off, disconnect it, wherever you want that water to go. When you're done with it and you want to reuse that water, like I'll just, I have some couple little food forests just from where I make it. Put mm-hmm. the hose there, open it up and drain it straight into wherever you want to go. And you're getting the bottom quench. You're holding the water as long as you want to if you're doing a mineral soak. Yeah. And
2: then you're putting the water wherever you want to. That's a great idea. They do that in the Contiki. Okay. The Contiki. And others have done it in their pyramid kilns and cone kilns. Um, I don't do that because I just pour it over. Sure. Uh, But it's absolutely a great way. When you said tube with a screw on, you reminded me of something I used to sell. And this guy – who was a friend of Kathleen Draper's from the upstate New York region, created something called the bio charlie. Okay. A bio log. Basically what it was, was a, a, a stove pipe about five, six inches in diameter, about okay. 18 to 20 inches long okay. with a cap on each end. One was permanent and the other one would just pulled off. Okay. It had a little handle on the end cap handle on the side and six little holes. You yes. fill it with, with, um, biomass, wood, whatever you wanted to, throw it in the fireplace or a stove or on top of one of your kilns while you're burning, and it's a retort, basically, which is a concealed thing. It was the coolest thing. I sold so many of those things, and then he said, you know what? It's not worth it for me to do them anymore. I'm making very little. I'm getting older. I'm retiring. He said, you can do it if you want, and I've been wanting – I even have a little note here – with all the dimensions and all the things that I want to do it sits here it's been sitting here for about a year or two and i eventually will get back to doing it because i had scientific researchers buying them that were like 75 bucks a piece and they would put them into a kiln or wherever a fireplace and make up batches of biochar for research work because nobody had anything that was simple to do this with so what i want to do is i want to make it out of a heavier steel with a, you know, a heavy cap on one end and a removable cap on the other with the holes and the handle on it and a little eyelet so that you can connect a chain to it. So if you put it into your kiln, your pyramid kiln or cone kiln, um, you don't want to quench it because you don't want to get it all wet and have all the metal freaking out. Yeah. So once, once way the thing is out. done, you, you know, you just pull the chain and yank it out of there and, um, and then let it cool down.
0: You know, um, what that makes me think of, and I don't know if you've seen this dude's videos, and I'm sure more than one person's doing them now. If you have a standard wood stove, what this guy was doing, he took a hotel tray, stainless steel hotel tray, like for catering service. Yeah, They're like 15 bucks at like Webstaurant or whatever. He would fill them with wood chips and set the lid on. No yep. modification whatsoever. Right. Set the whole thing into his wood stove that was already burning anyway to heat the house it would start gasifying the wood chips and then the gas would go into the stove and combust. Yes. And about every two hours he would take one out and put another one in. And he had worked out that it reduced his fuel load per winter. And this guy lived in like British somewhere cold, somewhere in Canada. And he had this huge pile of wood chips. And as you know, without specialized equipment, they're not the best thing to make biochar out of because they're so dense. But apparently in one of those trays, it just, like a I
2: bought one last year. I haven't used it yet. Uh, I was I was talking with somebody and they said, "Oh, check out this uh, this little article I saw," and they were doing it. So I went online and I found the you know one that was heavy enough. There's stainless steel with a lid. Um, some people put a little weight, a little piece of metal on top to keep the lid down there. Yeah. Um, it's not going to cause an explosion because there's plenty of space for the gas to come out. Long but notice, before the
0: pressure gets there, it will vent, right? Yeah. Yeah,
2: it'll vent and fine. Uh, what you'll notice is that there's a little flame cap coming around the yeah. edge of it. Yeah, it And cool. when that flame cap disappears, you know that your material inside is carbonized.
1: Yeah, that's what so he so yeah,
2: said. I bought one. I, actually, I bought a couple of them. One was the wrong size, and I sent it back, and I got one. It's still wrapped in the plastic. I haven't used it because when I get an idea, you know, I buy, I say, hey, I'm going to get to that one day. Let me get the stuff now so it's sitting there. When I get to it, I have it ready to go
0: the worst thing I ever got for my junk man nature was an 1800 square foot shop. Cause now I do the same thing. I buy it. There's a place for it. And I, I need to, I need to start only buying things when I'm ready to use them. Cause I do the same thing. Yeah. Um, I wanted to revisit your, your stuff about water because this is a place where I've had people say, I don't, I don't have any use for biochar because everything grows great anyway or what have you. And there's two things I bring up. One is the water and that's, what we'll go first. But the yeah. second one is, do you add fertility every year? Cause if you do, you could be building a fertility battery, but let's let's back up to the water first. Yeah. Um, I don't know anybody that, that lives in like my part of the world anyway that doesn't irrigate some because yeah, yeah. you got to Like we'll go right now. We're getting rain every couple of days. Small amounts. We're getting it. It will it will end and then it'll be like I will see you maybe in September, maybe in October. I don't know. Maybe this year, November. And so that in your hundred degree days, you have to irrigate. So the water retention alone, to me, if it didn't do any of the other amazing stuff, I would be using it for that because I think it's like seven x its weight.
2: Yes, that's right. Like
0: one point one ish, one point one five ish pounds of biochar holds a gallon. It's how that math works out.
2: Pretty really close, yes, exactly.
0: But what I noticed this year that really reinforced it when I did my potting mix this year for all my starts, I went with fifteen percent biochar inoculated in compost tea for that. I in my systems would need to water those starts at least once a day, or they would dry out really quickly. I was able to go two and a half, three days between waterings, especially once, once the seed sprouted and got roached down into the pot, it was a non-issue. I even let a couple of them go until they were looking sad. And that was at about five days. You could tell like, dude, could I have some water please? And Mm -hmm. if I had gone five days in my climate, with the, with without that biochar, you would have walked out and all you see is dead seedlings on the top.
2: Yes. Uh, yeah, it is great at water holding abilities. It it is about seven times its weight. And again, it all it, it will vary slightly with different kinds of feedstock that you make the biochar from, the pore structure and such. But it's a tremendous reservoir. And those little granules spread around through the soil column, the roots attached to, and there's like little mini reservoirs that they can access as they need it. So for that purpose alone, it is fantastic. And as you said, here uh, in, in where I live in Southern California, it was around Thanksgiving when the rain started and it's just ended. We yes. just had pretty much our last rains, you know, for the year until again at the next year. Now, what's interesting, just real quick, is that this season on my property, we got thirty six and a half inches of rainfall as we measure it. Last season was eight. The season before was 18, and the season before that was 28, because that was mm-hmm. an El Nino season. Yeah. So this is a record-breaking. We, not only did it fill our rain tanks up, but we had buckets and trays and trash cans and anything that will hold water all over the garden, and we got another 1,200 gallons out of that and used it up already. So it's been pretty amazing, you know, this year's rainfall. And we'll see what happens next year. But yes, biochar is great for drought tolerance. Now, even when you have biochar in there, if you let it go a really long time and the plants fall over, that biochar, because of not only its nature of holding water, but all the other great attributes, you water that plant that looks like it's dead and it will probably come back. Whereas one without biochar will not. Yeah. We've done experiments with this up at uh, Oregon State University many years ago. One of my colleagues who has since passed away um and proven that you know it really it not only drought tolerates while it's the plants are alive but if the plants go through some shock because of a lack of water for a period of time those with biochar will come back and the others will generally not
0: yeah I've observed that as well i once I let look unhappy, I kind of felt if I didn't think they were going to come back. I let them go to I thought they weren't. I watered them to see and and they did come back around. They were, they were a little unhappy for a couple of days because they had been stressed so hard. Mm -hmm. But my point is, if I had mind farted and not watered my seed starts for a couple of days without it, everything's wiped out. And you know, when you're, when you're starting your stuff four or six weeks out and you've got all that effort into it and you lose starts, like that alone was amazing to me. And then my other thing is like, I call it trying to get off therapy. Like I'll always add fertility because it's part of the innate processes we have here with the composting and what have you. I got to do something with the waste, but yeah. it's amazing how much, even like you said, organic operators, how much input is used to keep cropping up and, when we're doing this, what we're doing is we're building that reserve battery of life and nutrient in the soil. Mm-hmm. And over time we resu- reduce reduced the input requirement. And I think this is something yes, that especially exactly. like, I have people in Northern climates, Paul, Weedon for one to push back. This is for the tropics, you know, we don't need it in Montana. And I'm like, if you're, if you need fertility every year, then you could need less and you could need less irrigation. And I think that's like, this is, I teach time preference thinking, and the problem we have today is people want to know what do I get this year, and you're lucky if you can push them to think in the next year. And if I had the slide, I'd bring it up. But I looked at a slide. I stole the slide from a presentation that was a graph where they did. It was raw biochar in Aspen woodlands where they're doing like uh, fire prevention work. They take all the dead debris and all, right. and they, they reduce the dry tender. Well, they brought a uh, field, cone kilns, pit kilns, whatever, out of the field. They made biochar. One place they did nothing. Another group they put down straight fertilizer. Another group they put down wood chips. Another group they put biochar. And another group they put biochar with fertilizer. Now, what was not specified is what did they mean by fertilizer? Do you mean 10, 10, 10? Do you mean chicken? You know, They didn't say, so we don't right. know. Year one, fertilizer outperformed any everything. And as you'd expect, naked char did the worst. Year right. five, and they touched, they did nothing after this except measure the wood mass. Right. Year five, the naked biochar outperformed everything else, including biochar with fertilizer. Yep. So now we're thinking seven generations is how we need to be thinking. And this is a way to do that. It's what I've been trying to convey. It's that your time banking. So, you know, we talk about stacking in space all the time and now we need to stack in time on top of that. And this is a time stack.
2: You really hit it on the nail there. Um, You know, it is a long term thing. Again, it's going to be around for many, many, many centuries. Um, It is true that you're creating a living soil with biochar is going to see increases every year. So what I notice is a lot of clients that I built gardens. Quick, Michael,
0: keep rolling. I'm going to solve this problem so it doesn't bother us. Yeah. Go
2: so what I've noticed in a lot of my clients' gardens that we have built for them is that they come back to me every year for more ingredients and more, more amendment things. And they always say, hey, you know, this year is better than last year. And that continues on. It keeps getting better and better. So that is a very good point that you made, Jack, about the long-term investment into the soil. Now, one of the things that comes up a lot is, you know, you'll see research papers saying, oh, biochar doesn't work everywhere. It's only for this kind of soil or very depleted soils. Um, but that's nearly not accurate. Um, biochar is for all soils. And, it can, and, and you may not get all the benefits from it. Like if you're in a very rainy area and you don't worry about the moisture you know, uh, content being retained into the soil, you will get advancement to microbiology you will get less runoff of the nutrients.
0: You'll get and better you'll, structure, too.
2: Yeah, the tilth, the, the, the drainage, the aeration, it, it enhances all of that. So to say that biochar doesn't work in all soils is not accurate, and I wouldn't go by that. I would say that depending upon what your soil needs, biochar will provide that. So you may not need the water holding ability, or you may not need this or that, But you're going to need one of those and you don't have it now or you don't have it to an degree that it could be at its peak and a a more efficient um, um, use of it. So so in my opinion, biochar is used, utilized in all soils pretty much everywhere and in many other things. You know, I'm seeing I've seen for many years now people with forward thinking hydroponic systems. Aside from the medium that they're growing in, they'll put biochar in there as well. And there are great attributes to that. Um, their water is cleaner, less filtering, less, you know, contaminants getting in there because the biochar will sequester that. Uh, more microbiology holding abilities. Now, we talk about microbiology in in hydroponics. Um, it's not the same as soil. OK, because the water and the medium doesn't hold as much microbiology. Basically, in hydroponics, you're forcing nutrients into the plant through the root system, you know, circumventing the soil. Now, several years ago, I went to a seminar up at the place called Tree People, which is an organization that plants trees throughout California. A wonderful organization founded 50 years ago by my friend Andy Lipkis. So I went to this thing, it was a four-day seminar, and the people from Kiss the Ground sponsored me and gave me a ticket, it was like 1200 bucks, and I attended. And the guy who was doing it was named Graham Sait from from Australia, a great scientist, and on the third day, he started talking about hydroponics. Now, please, nobody misunderstand me, I am not knocking hydroponics, but I want to give you some realities, because I started hydroponics 42 years ago on an indoor pot farm in north hollywood okay so i got a lot of experience with hydroponics i built my own systems so anyway what graham showed us was you cannot duplicate what soil does the 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 interaction of root systems plants and everything with that soil the microbiology all the the things that are so dynamic to soil do not happen in hydroponics the thing that's attractive about hydroponics is that you use less water They grow quickly. You can do it indoors, outdoors. You can do it anywhere. And all those things are very good. But you do not get nutrient density in hydroponics like you do in soil. There is a really big separation between the two. So I'm not knocking it, but I want you to know that if you're after nutrient density, high BRICS level, more immunity against insects and against disease, you're not going to get that with hydroponics to the degree you will with soil. Simply put.
0: I've used it mostly for quick turn leaf crops, especially in winter when mm-hmm. they're hard to produce. Like yeah. being able to have fresh basil in January is great. Yeah. Um, I've also used it with some modifications that I won't get into today to do starts that end up in the soil. Yeah. And I've been able to get plants off to an incredible start. A, wow. Tree.
2: I like that. That's a great use of it. Like I said, I don't want to dig deep into it, but
0: basically you have to highly modify the net cup yeah. so that when you pull the plant out, you don't destroy the root system. Yes. So you basically prune the net cup down to there's only just enough to hold whatever. I don't use rock wool. I use a product called the Rapid Rooter, and I use right. those because when I do pure hydro, when they're I also do aquaponics, and when they're like spent, instead of throwing them away or composting them, I throw them on top of an ebb and flow bed. Uh-huh. And you come out the next morning and the worms come up at night and they eat all the roots out of it and go back in. I can get like five uses out of them. Cool. So it, there's all kinds of ways to tweak, but I'm I'm with you. And when I was teaching, like I investigate and I teach an, a huge audience. And so I want to be able to talk about everything. And I would get hammered by the soil people. And I'm like, I never said it was better. I just said it was different. And you might want to know how to do it. So like maybe someday it'll prevent you from starving to death. Or you can modify it and use it, but I'm with you that there is an interaction. Now, aquaponics to me is a totally different thing. Yes. And when you dig apart an ebb and flow bed after a season, you're building soil in the ebb and flow beds. You actually build to a point where you need to literally tear things down because you get too much. Yeah, And it's a whole different level of interaction, but it's still not... What we're talking about with soil, it is what it is, and it's a it's good thing. It's definitely
2: more more uh, more. It's closer to soil than hydro pure regular hydroponics yeah. is, but yeah. it's still a pretty good distance away. Yeah. But in certain parts of the world throughout history, it was very common. In yeah. Central and South America, there were many indigenous tribes that did these floating platforms in fish ponds yeah and it worked out very well they were successful but they were using a lot of soil in those beds not just you know the types of mediums that we're doing today
0: now you're like talking chinampa systems and stuff like that and and i've kind of emulated that without trying it was just what works best so a lot of people think they're going do aquaponics and grow a lot of fish and no you're not uh, Um aquaponics if it's pure aquaponics it's At the edge of what's possible for stocking density, overstocked and then overfiltered. That's how that works. If you put five guppies in a 300-gallon tank, you're not going to grow much because they don't produce enough waste. And then you have this constant rebalancing as the fish grow out. You really need two fish tanks, different stages of growth. It's complex. So I built really big. I can't put a pond in the ground here. So I built these really big, like my biggest one, 6,500 gallons, Uh above-ground timber frame ponds. Yeah. Liner rim, and I run the water through wicking beds. Yeah. So a pump kicks on for 15 minutes every morning, 15 minutes every evening, and it flows through the bottom of the wicking bed. Uh-oh. And that way the level of the wicking bed never, go, never really goes down. It's whatever it can do in 12 hours and it's back topped up and overflowing and then it settles to the level you want it at. Well, now you have a foot of soil. Yeah. And you can do whatever you want as far as compost, worms. You can keep worms right in there. But what I've got is I've got a system with like twelve wicking beds in it that are not growing anything this year. I'm kind of tapped out on time. They're going to get relocated this fall, and when I redo them, I'm damn sure going to take the soil that's in them, and I'm going to incorporate biochar into that.
2: Absolutely, a great idea. It works great in aquaponics. You just got to figure out where in where in the setup that you want to put it to get the most benefits. The thing about aquaponics also is um, it is Again, I am totally for it. I just don't happen to do it. And I've worked on some aquaponic projects. We built an aquaponic system, oh, God, probably 10 years ago or so at Venice High School at the learning center there. Uh, David King was the guy who ran the place. I think he still does. Um, The thing about aquaponics is you've got to be watching it every day, all the time, pretty much. I mean, it's not something like you can grow in a field and, you know, have your sprinklers on and walk away from it for a period of time. You don't walk away from aquaponics, or otherwise you have a disaster, and that whole investment goes right down the tubes. All the fish die, yeah. or something contaminates somewhere. So when you're doing aquaponics, you got to be around all the time. You're not going on a three week vacation anywhere, No. unless you got somebody competent to watch it while you're gone.
0: Yeah, I got a I got a farm sitter who was here when we built everything. Good, and that's, but, but I'm still I'm not really do I, nothing I do I would call aquaponics anymore. I'd call aquatics. I do have a system. And I have an idea for it, and I'd like your thoughts on this. Yeah. So I have a system that mostly is a fairly large, it's about 8 foot by 16 foot, and it's almost in ground, barely raised, uh-huh. pond liner systems behind my duck coop. And what I do with it mostly right now is I raise a Zola and water hyacinth that I feed to my livestock. Cool. And then they, they're fed in a way that whatever's left over becomes part of the compost every season. I have a 50-gallon stock tank elevated in the area because the ducks are not allowed in there because they'll eat everything that's being grown for them before it grows. So I have it uh, up where they can go. I have a 50-gallon stock tank. It's not their primary water. They come home every night and take a bath in it, crap in it. And I can actually (laughs) open that up. I can water trees with it, and I kind of monitor the the waste load. And quite a few times a week, it actually dumps into that pond. Uh And that spurs the growth. Like my water hyacinth is just really kicking off. In another month, I'll be able to feed – a wheelbarrow a day and never run out of it. I have these big four by four 150 gallon roughly tanks that are elevated that water's thrown in various ways and they come back down to that system. It'd be real easy to throw like three ebb and flow beds across a stack of them, put it on one timer. And I, I do ebb and flow with a timer. I don't do bell siphons, bell siphons stick and timers don't right. So the timer goes off for 15 minutes. Water comes in a bottom hole fills up to an overstack, overflows, timer shuts off, water goes back down through the pump. It's flawless. It never fails. You never find a stick siphon. Uh, It's the way all the hydro people do ebb and flow. And I just said, well, why can't you do that in aquaponics? I think it'd be real easy to take like three 20 gallon tubs, set one above each one of those, fill them with biochar, run ebb and flow in it. I don't care if anything grows in it. You're taking all that nutrient. You're taking all that biology and you're constantly in an aerated state inoculating that biochar. Yep. My question would be for you, with all your past knowledge, about how long you're running a 15 on, 45 off, 24 hours a day. How long would you leave that there before you'd consider that biochar ready to go into other uses?
2: Well, not knowing the amount of nutrient going through it, I would say uh, probably only as much as a week. Really? You okay. know, I, would, I don't think it's going to take that long to do that because once that high, once that biochar is hydrophilic okay which yeah. is again easy to do and just plain water will eventually make the biochar yeah. hydrophilic um it's going to start to absorb very very quickly and fill up very very quickly uh with those nutrients and you got all kinds of natural nitrogen in there and the trace minerals and other stuff in there that the animals feces have in there um i think it's a great idea and it, i don't think it'll take very long at all maybe cool. a week you know, yeah, I want
0: to try it. And, and the good if you thing is, want to is,
2: let it sit longer, fine. Yeah, that's so I was thinking. I it's can't. It's only it. going to load up to a certain point. It's, it can't load up beyond what whatever fills yeah. the tank. Yeah. So you can't put 20 gallons in a 10 gallon tank. But you know what happens is, once it's full, it's it's pretty much ready to start using. Now, I personally like to make my inoculants for the biochar more complex. I like broad spectrum. So I'm going to use fish fertilizer. I'm going to use kelp fertilizer. I'm going to put, you know, different kinds of uh, worm casting extracts. I like things to be very complex because the broader spectrum, the more the plants and the more the soil and more everything will come out of it. Very, very. So I'm always looking for complexity in my composting, in my biochar inoculation, in my soil blends. Um, one thing that we did not talk about, and I'm going to briefly mention, because I know we've been on for a while, is that um, Bokashi. Okay. Um, I love Bokashi. Um, I actually, uh, my friend, Quattamac Villa up in Oregon, I consider one of the experts on Bokashi. And about a year and a half ago, he did, uh, when we were still in COVID, our local garden club, the uh, Ventura County Organic Garden Club, had him on our uh, Zoom call. And he was talking about biochar. he's an expert on biochar as well. Um, one of Matt Power's educators on his course. And he was talking about Bokashi and everybody got so excited that before the Zoom call was over, everybody going, wow, we should do this. I said, OK, OK, we'll have a biochar, a Bokashi workshop at my house on such and such a date. And 30 people showed up. So I got a bunch of rice bran I got the e m one the molasses, the water, and I got these special ten gallon food grade um barrels with you know with locking lids, yeah, so we mixed um some biochar a little bit of biochar in with the rice bran, and we were making it so the reason I'm talking about Bokashi is because I have been using it in some really cool ways, obviously, the way most people were introduced to Bokashi was through these little container composters you put under your sink that go yeah. anaerobic. Yeah. So you put your food waste in there and you seal it up. Now if you opened it without Bokashi in there it's going to stink like high holy hell. Yeah. But if you put a little Bokashi in there it starts to decompose everything and it breaks down the bacteria that goes bad that causes the smell. So you can compost if you live in New York City or in a city and you don't have a composter outside but you got plants and you want to have compost. That's how that, they always included Bokashi, and they have a little, um, at the bottom of the square, you know, container was a little spigot to get the exudate ex- ex- out, and that's how most people learned about it, but it's used in in regular anaer- aerobic composting. We put it in our soil blends, and what Quattemoc was showing us was that he makes these Bokashi balls with bentonite clay or some kind of clay, biochar, and the Bokashi, And he throws them in ponds and waterways, and it cleans them up. Interesting. It's fantastic. So I just got a job that I'm going to be delivering tomorrow. And basically, it's this guy who lives in Pacific Palisades, a beautiful home, with this awesome pond with natural plants and fish. Of course, when I was there, the algae took over everything. So they're going to clean the pond out, get all the algae out. We're going to take these mesh bags that are somewhere around 18 by 24 and they're they're somewhat flat maybe about eight inches thick you know is what you get and we filled it with a blend of bokashi and biochar so it's eight parts biochar to one part bokashi is what we did in there blended it all mixed it all together filled them in there pulled the drawstring and what we're going to do is sink them in the pond now they if you throw them on the water they'll float for a while so we're going to put some river rocks in the bottom of the bags the five bags that we made for this particular project, and then we're going to pour, there's about 1,800 gallons or 2,000 gallons in this pond. We're going to pour two liters of bamboo vinegar in there, one at one end where the intake is to go to the filter system, and one at the waterfall, so it disperses well.
1: Okay.
2: And that water is going to stay clean for a long time, yeah. I mean, yeah. a couple of years. Yeah. So I'm delivering that tomorrow and it's my first, you know, I actually have done this before. In my rain tanks, I have bags of biochar suspended in the tank, and then in my fountain, I have a little teeny bag of biochar and bokashi in there, and it keeps the fountain water clean, and it holds the algae down.
0: You know what? I'm going to try that in my, my wife's little pond. I built her for a bird bath. Yeah. All my ponds are large enough systems that the biology in them, I mean, the one I dump, you know, duck poop into four times a week, if you put a quart jar in there and lift it up. It's I wouldn't drink it, but it's crystal clear. Hers uh, just stays. I've tried barley straw. It just stays green. Um, yeah. I think it's because of the size issue and it stays really warm. I'm going to give that a shot in that one. Um, let's take some questions. Sure. Because uh, I have held you here all, two, almost two hours. Um, and I want to start out with one that actually benefits me. So where is it? Okay. John asked about Will it help with black soldier fly bins? I use a lot of fish in my bin, and it stinks when downwind. And I want to ask that question because I do worms, and I'm about to add soldier flies. And one of the workshops from Living Web Farms, the expert teaching the BSL, said don't use the frost as fertilizer. Feed it to your worms, put it through the worm bin, and then you have, like, Super fertilizer out the other end. If I was going to do that, would you biochar in the VSL bin or wait till it got into the earthworms?
2: You know, that's a good question. Where is the smell occurring? At the uh, end or see the end? If beginning? John's
0: still here, you can follow up with that. But this is, he's talking about Black, black Soldier 5 bin. He, that was my question.
2: I, I see no, no issues with it. I have to know a little bit more. So, John, if you want to call me and let's have a conversation about it, I open up to you. My website will have my phone number give me a call and i'd be more than happy to talk about that cuz that's fascinating and i'm into it um bokashi is a great thing for controlling smells in a lot of places biochar is too the two mm-hmm. together biochar is a little slower the bokashi is a little quicker because the biochar is just absorbing the odors whereas the bokashi is actually breaking down the bacteria that are causing that odor so you're working from two different things combining them together i think is uh, a win win The question is, where do you put it? And I need to know a little bit more about the system to describe where that is. If I was standing there with you, John, right next to you, it would come to me like that. Gotcha. But I'm not there. So I need you, your eyes to help me to understand that. And then we together, you and I can figure out the best application. What stage do you put it in?
0: Okay, cool. All right. So um, let's see. Rachel says, how much does that tool go for to analyze bricks? And how do you spell it? Uh, she's like talking a about a re- refractometer.
2: A refractometer. Um, oh, let me see if I have a spelling here real quick. I'm sure I do. I just got to find the sheet that has it.
0: I'll cheat. Uh, I'll, I'll find it for you. You can just
2: answer the price. Okay, so a refractometer. Huh. Ah. R E F R A C T O. M-E-T-E-R, refractometer. Now, there's a lot of them out there for, you know, 30, 20, 30, 40 bucks. I don't recommend it. And the reason is it's not that they're not accurate or anything like that. But when you get a better one, you want one that says it's self-compensating for temperature. And it makes it much easier so that when you get that BRICS number inside of it, you don't have any further calculations that you need to do. The one that I bought originally well, 13 years ago, uh, I think I paid $135 for it. Uh, I have seen that same one come down to about 100 Um There's two brands. I'm sorry, I don't recall offhand what the names of the brands were. But we have a kit for $110 bucks that has a good refractometer that is self-compensating, the shredding scissor, and the little press, and the laminated sheets all together. It's not on the current website, but if you want to call me, And talk to me. We'll be able to get one to you. We have a couple of the kits in stock. I can make up more very easily. Um, Just haven't put it on the old website. We're waiting for the new one to come on. I I don't know the date when that new one is going to go up. But um, any questions that you have about anything, I invite all of you to contact me. Now, obviously, um, some people like texting. Some people like email. careful
0: what you ask for
2: yeah I no I asked you this last time, and I got yeah. a lot, yeah. but I do I think the best way, the most nuance in a conversation is a conversation on Agreed. Agreed. now if you call me, please leave a message if I don't answer. I will get back to you okay. or send me a message with your information, and I'll contact you, whatever. I just prefer a conversation and maybe I'm a little old fashioned that way, but the reality is there's no conversation better than one that when you're talking to each other as opposed to texting or emailing. So, you can- know, and I do a lot of that too. Yeah. So yeah. um let's see what happens this time. Last time it went pretty well. It wasn't too bad. Uh, some days I got quite a few calls. Yeah. Uh, but I do. Get, it, it, I'm sure if you ask anybody who has uh, left me a message, they know that I will get back with you, you know, as soon as possible.
0: Michael Whitman returns his calls. I can attest to that. Take the ride. said. Could you break up the biochar into appropriate size using something like a rock tumbler. Out now. Rock tumblers are pretty little. I, I don't know what your thoughts are on this. I, I'm, I'm fine with the drive over the bag method. I like using my wood chipper. I'm sure the steel leaf vac, if you have one or will invest one works great. Like you said, um, I did hear a guy say the way they were doing theirs. And I think this is another Aussie. They had a cement mixer on site anyway. They'd throw the biochar in there. They'd throw a few fist-sized rocks in there. It sounds like it would make a terrible noise. But they'd run it for a while, and they'd end up with really fine stuff and then a little bit coarser stuff, and all the coarser stuff would end up on the top. Yeah. So, so that was one way I heard to do it. And
2: uh, Yeah. It now, you can use it. some of the fine stuff. There's nothing wrong with it. But, you know, you want the granular sizing that's optimal is 1 to 10 millimeter. Right. Okay. okay. Doesn't mean if there's a little bit outside in this way – it, it's going to still work. It just won't be at the, the the total peak, but it'll still be quite well there. OK. You know, so there are all kinds of different methods. Um, just remember that when you are breaking it up, you're going to get dust, you know, in certain simple methods. So please wear a really good sealing mask on your face when you are doing that. You might even have a hose with a fine mist to spray some of it out of the air. You know, or if you're done with it and you start transferring it from one container to the next, it's going to go airborne.
0: That's when it really smokes.
2: Just, you know, it give a little uh, misting of water to keep the dust down.
0: And even if you've had it wet, if you let it sit like in a bin for a couple of days, it will dry out pretty well. And you can yeah. yeah. repeat that. So Joe asked, was softwood versus hardwood covered? I found that when I talked to commercial producers of biochar... They always say the one that they get their their feedstock from is the better one. I think they both work. If you had a preference, you know, I do mostly hardwood because that's what I have here for, for yeah. flash to, to use. Um, it would seem to me in some way in my head, for some reason I would gravitate toward hardwoods, but does it even really matter?
2: Well, there are differences between it, but whether it really matters in the long run for most of us, no, it doesn't yeah. really. I like exactly. to mix it all together. I like, again, broad spectrum it's you got a little a little of this a little of that the pore structure in a hardwood is definitely going to be you know tighter together whereas a softwood is going to have a looser pore structure if you're making activated carbon okay by the way here's a quickie the difference between activated carbon and biochar they're kissing cousins but they're not exactly the same Mm -hmm. activated carbon is used Um, in medical reasons and many other things. For instance, if you go to the hospital with an overdose or a poisoning or any kind of toxicity, the first thing they do is take your vital signs. The second thing they do is farting a slurry of charcoal down into your digestive system so that it can chelate all that stuff in your digestive system into itself and then take it out of the body when you defecate. So it's used for that. They generally use hardwoods. Now, when they're making the activated carbon, it goes through the same pyrolysis process that biochar would do. But then it goes through a, a, another stage of um, kind of paralysis, which would be a, a secondary or a, th- a third retort to affect the pore structure for specific things. They'll like inject steam in there or something else. So when you're dealing with, um, you know, the activated carbons, they're pretty much always hardwood. But the difference between hardwood and softwood, yeah, there are some differences, but not enough to make any kind of judgment call saying, oh, I'm only going to use this one or I'm only going to use this one. They're both going to work fine. They're just going to have different pore structures, you know, that'll um, maybe bring in different microbiology will fit into one as opposed to the other.
1: Gotcha. So
2: now when we're talking about grasses or hemp or other softer fibrous materials and we make biochar from that, you're pretty much only getting powder.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
2: Because there's no structure like a piece of wood where it'll break down into a granular form, you know? And then of course, if you keep beating it up, it's going to break down to powder, but with grasses and hemp and things similar to that, you're going to get pretty much powdered biochar. And again, nothing terrible about it, but you want that one to 10 millimeter granular size for the highest surface area and the most usefulness for the root systems and the soil. That That's what I would recommend.
0: Bamboo biochar?
2: Bamboo biochar is pretty wonderful, actually. Um, I've talked to people around the country Uh, who have done some research with it, and they say it's one of the optimal things. The problem is we don't have enough bamboo here to do it on a scale. Um, Several years ago, about seven years ago, the company that I get the uh, bamboo vinegar from, um, I decided to – I got some samples of their bamboo biochar, and I decided to buy a container of it. Wow, one of the biggest mistakes I ever made, not because the product wasn't good, but because they screwed up on the shipping and they ended up sitting in a warehouse and they oh. charged me $3,000 for it to sit there for a week, the container. Oh. Then they packed it so poorly because they figured to be in the container, nothing would happen. But as they were moving in and out, they, the things, the bags were overflowing over the pallets. And when oh. they moved around, the bags were breaking. They put one single sheet of shrink wrap around it. When I got the container, there was about six to eight inches of biochar on the bottom. We couldn't even get a pallet jack in there to get the pallets out. We had to sweep and vacuum all that, that biochar out of there, you know, literally onto the ground, which I was able to use again because I didn't care if there was dirt in it. But I couldn't sell it because nobody wanted to buy biochar with dirt in it. So I had to go through all this problem with it. But point I'm making is bamboo biochar is pretty good stuff. It's got a lot of silica in it. Um, that's why I like the bamboo vinegar because it has a lot of silica in it, as opposed to the hardwoods, softwoods would have less. They both do a great job. Just one has a little more silica in it.
0: Okay, I want to go ahead and wrap up, because we're at two hours and ten minutes almost here. I do want to give you a chance to talk about this, though. will want to tell people what you're looking at there. You're pretty excited about that.
2: Yeah, yeah. So a friend of mine who does the hempcrete, um, and he mixes uh, biochar with the hempcrete, he buys uh, our powdered biochar. He came over about two weeks ago, and he with a little box, and he was holding it close to his chest. And, and I go, what's in there? He goes, it's a surprise. So we go out into the patio, and he pulls this little block out, and I went, whoa. And he hands it to me, and I thought it was going to weigh a lot because it's cement. Yeah. But it's not just cement. It's cement, biochar, hemp shavings, and really fine dust from hemp, and the stem from the frond of the palm. And he mixed them together, and the the it's phenomenal. It's so lightweight, so you can use this as a building material, or mi- blend this together to do cement things, you know, pads, whatever you're going to do. And your carbon footprint is way down because you know cement is the highest, one of the highest carbon footprint things in the world. It takes so much carbon to make this stuff, ship it, do everything with it. So it's lightweight. It's super strong. We're taking waste materials that need to be, you know, done with somewhere. Doesn't mean that we don't already have a place for them, but this is just one more. And as the hemp industry grows, there's going to be more waste. So this is an incredible little block made of cement, biochar, hemp, and palm. So it's and basically he, he hemp, me, hempcrete on steroids. Oh, man. It's, uh, this is structural. Hemp, yeah. Hempcrete is not structural. Okay. It's just insulation. Wow. So you can't take a hempcrete block and build a building with it, and hope it'll hold. It won't. Yeah. it's not yeah. that strong. They, they used a thing called the Rockwell test, which is the the, uh, the tensile strength of something uh, of something. And so I ex- expressed to him my my um in my recommendation that he do um, one with all four ingredients, one with just cement, one with just uh, cement and biochar, one yeah. with cement and uh, and then put them all through the test to see what the Rockwell hardness would be.
0: Very cool. Very cool. Well,
2: Michael. Okay, so this question: Farm fiber from the palm gave it more strength. Yeah, a little bit because it sort of acts like a rebar.
0: It's a tensile strength.
2: It's a tensile strength and and such. So it's like when we put biochar in there in granular form, those little granules have a lot of nook, you know, cragginess to them, and when the cement locks in with it, you know, it's it's. It's sort of like a rebar. It's not really, but it's yeah. something similar. I, like I said to you earlier, I poured a, a three-by-nine pad for uh, my barbecue because I had to move it from under the patio. We put a new patio cover on, and we didn't want it to burn. So we, I decided, hey, let's just throw 25% biochar in there, and it came out this beautiful Battleship Gray. Oh, wow. And it's pretty cool.
0: That could be worth it for the aesthetics alone, and I think it will yeah. get life to – Life to concrete. You know, they've never actually figured out how the Romans made their concrete.
2: Oh, man. They make concrete. Couldn't have so something dumb. in there. Don't so rebar.
0: Maybe fire had a uh, – because uh, we can't build concrete as good as the Romans built. That's we, right. We we still don't know how to do it. Dude, this has been a great conversation. Thank you. It's it's made, I enjoyed it thoroughly. I want to let cool. everybody know, because the vast majority of people listen to the audio only. If you're driving down the road and you're hearing all these things and URLs and whatever – don't sweat it. Don't pull over, wreck your car or nothing. Um, just go by the site, the survivalpodcast.com, pull up today's episode, 30, 3307. It stays there forever, so if it's five months from now, it'll still be there. All of Michael's links are in the show notes. They're broken out to the general links and to the links that are for the products and stuff like that as well, uh, and all of my resources are there as well. Michael, thank you for being with us today.
2: Thank you very much, Jack. I can't wait to get together with you. Um, I think our heads are going to explode.
0: Yeah. Yeah. We might create a vortex or something, but
2: uh,
0: (laughs) I'll chat you with you about that. Maybe we'll figure out a way to make that come on, but uh, we're going to wrap up now. Thanks for being with us today.
2: Thanks, man. Thank you very much. Take care everybody. Let me hear from you.
0: All right, folks, real quick before I go, I want to remind you that one of the ways you can support my show is do your online shopping at tspaz.com. If you see it there, I own it, I bought it, I spent my money on it, or I would not tell you to buy it. Today's item of the day is new and old at the same time. Kind of like me. I'm new every day, but I get older every day. I have recommended for EDC the Gerber Dime Mini Multi-Tool and the MicroStream Flashlight, the Mini MicroStream uh, by Streamlight Flashlight. I carry both of these all the time myself. I've been recommending them individually individually. For going on about five years now, I've recommended the microstream forever, but I started recommending the mini, uh, the or, I'm sorry, the Streamlight uh, stylus, which is a two battery light forever. But I started recommending the smaller one when Nicole Sauce st- informed me that that girl jeans, in her words, have stupid non pockets, and the longer one doesn't fit in the daggone pocket. Well, I found out this week that there's a combo where you can save about twenty six percent by buying them together. So that's our item of the day. You can check it out. You can find it at tspaz.com or the thesurvivalpodcast.com. Just scroll down and you'll find it. And with that, I am going to wrap up. Went long today, but I hope when we bring you content like this, you realize how dedicated we are to improving your knowledge and your skill sets for all the things that will help us feed each other, feed ourselves, and improve things for our family for generations to come. With that, I will catch you tomorrow with another episode. Announcement is that tomorrow... It's going to be a weird day. We're going to have the expert counsel show that's for Friday released on Thursday. You will be able to catch a live stream tomorrow, but it will be much later than normal because I'm interviewing Jeff Lawton. And he's in Australia and it's already tomorrow there. So I will have the live stream for Jeff tomorrow afternoon and the audio version of that released um, Friday morning. So a little bit of a change up. Still the same number of shows, same types of shows and what have you. Uh, but with that, I'll catch you guys tomorrow. Take care, and uh, thanks for tuning in. Are they going to bail you out or just run you around?
1: They said you should have a house the American way. A
0: dollar down, a dollar a month, and you never have to pay